Ja, hallo und herzlich willkommen bei einer weiteren Welcome Sitzung. Welcome to another session of the Corona Investigative Committee, session number 108, Fiat Justitia. And at Periat Mundus is how we continue it. Be there, be, be there justice, even if the world drowns on it. Um, that is something that is all dear and near to us. We have to come to justice and to the full right as is guaranteed to us by the basic law. We have a number of guests talking about legal aspects with us today. Maybe, Rainer, you want to make an opening statement or do we want to talk to the guests? Let's get started immediately. Martin is the one who might uh, help us make most progress, ensuring for the very first time in German legal history that a German legal decision, which normally uh, doesn't bother the world at all, might be uh, of import. Yes. So let me report on the proceedings of the military complaint uh, of two officers of the Bundeswehr who complained against the mandatory vaccination scheme of the German army. There have been two further hearings and uh, the result to start off with is that there's going to be two more days of hearings in front of the court, which if we need them, we don't know yet, but um, if we're not through on the 7th of uh, July, we will carry on. Um, providing the evidence to the court. Um, I will uh, talk in chronological order on how that complaint proceeded. Um, from the Tuesday morning, we heard an expert from Robert Koch Institute. From that working group who works for all the uh, pr promotes and works on the data for the German vaccination commission and that means they are very deeply involved in the recommendations given by the vaccination committee afterwards and the question was whether the vaccines are effective um mr richman limited his explanation to that he's a private uh, lecturer and he had already the Pandemrex vaccine in the swine flu, talking about in public, saying it was very safe. And as we know today, he was completely mistaken by that. He didn't talk about safety at all, but he referred to the representative of the Paul Ehrlich Institute, who we listened to in the afternoon. He, however, restricted himself to the efficacy and explained that this vaccination um, also with respect to Omicron will reduce the transfer of the sick disease and uh, prevent people from having uh, severe courses. And he mentioned two researchers, however, he wasn't able to uh, name the resources. Unfortunately, we couldn't ask all the questions we wanted to ask. Um, I hope that will be possible. I would like to have a look at these two studies that he referred to. And he also explained that in the beginning, the vaccination has a good protection, which is reduced after a couple of months. And when he was asked how he 
comments on statements saying that COVID-19, at the latest with Omicron, latest is what I inserted here, um, the question was whether with Omicron we can assume that this corona pandemic, epidemic, whatever, uh, is comparable to a normal seasonal flu. And he said, no, that is not comparable because uh, SARS-CoV-2 is not known enough. And however, he couldn't say that the infection rates by somehow uh, is somehow distinguishable from the seasonal flu. He pointed out that there is certain insecurities about that virus. And following that, the court asked a couple of questions on the normal everyday work of Mr. Wichmann. He explained his function in the RKI and um, that he works with the question, do these injections take effect? Um, he, look, he works on the safety issues as well, but that uh, doesn't seem to be his focus area. And then he repeatedly said the studies show that this vaccination protects against Omicron as well. Answering the question on what about the study from uh, Stephanie Seneff, Immunate Immune Suppression, a study published February 22 as a preprint. And in April 2022, it was published after a peer review where, of course, we asked the question, does he know that study? Does the STIKO also evaluate that? And he says, well, observation uh, studies have shown that this is uh, helpful still. I um, know of an Israelian research which seems to point out the opposite. Um, but, of course, I don't have these 800 uh, um, studies um, in uh, all of them. However, he said, the basic concept is that the vaccination protects against Omicron as well. And then, of course, we confronted him with a couple of facts. Uh, for example, the global transparency test on 27th of May 2022 came up with an interesting observation in a uh, report from the 28th of April 22, um, the last weekly report where uh, the vaccination status um, and the symptomized and the hospitalized and the dead patients were listed. And um, at the end, that ended up with 193. Um, that is what it says, um, 193 dead people in the week 13 to 16. And now, if you uh, look at the COVID-19 deaths um, differentiated, by um, age and and uh, sex, and uh, if you add these up, if you take that study from the sixth uh, of July, you end up with over five thousand. I don't remember who asked that question, how he explains that big discrepancy. And he said, well, this table ha uh, is a bit distorted because it includes 
um, deaths that have not been confirmed by the laboratory. That means people without a PCR test have been included in the tests and uh, in the statistics and people without a symptom as well. And I asked him, how can you die of corona without symptoms? And then he corrected, well, um, that... Uh, uh, um, he said uh, that, uh, mo mostly there were symptoms, um, uh, so uh, that was kind of, uh, uh, we said that uh, there is, has to be some kind of symptom before someone dies, um, and that uh, made him quite insecure. Can, can you explain the figures again? I only heard the two figures now, 193 dead. 193 in the weekly report and over 5,000 for the same period in the Excel file. Okay. And this Excel file is by who? That's from the RKRI. I put in a search term um, that was a transparency test. And I found that table, and Mr. Wichmann knew what table I was talking about. So that is uh, real. So they know very well that on the one hand they have real figures and then figures that they use publicly. Well, I don't think you can really say it that way. The figures are public. He said he can't really we don't have to check the vaccination state of everybody who dies so we can't put all of them in the weekly reports so i wonder then why this excel file is not at least somehow uh, categorized and cleaned um, i couldn't solve that contradiction however the problem in the robert koch institute is and that has been forwarded in the media, it's quite intransparent what type of figures they uh, supply. Um, in the Transparency Association, they went even further and looked at the daily reports and added the daily add up, and that amounted to even more. So I, if I'm uh, to speak quite frankly, I would be grateful if the RKRI could decide to come up with a transparent set of figures and if there are different figures explain why they are published in what way how they are taken out and how they arrive at the figures instead you have to work your own way through this uh, and if at the same time i see that uh, earlier uh, journalist from deutschlandfunk uh, just told me that confusion uh, is part of propaganda that the people um, are subjected to propaganda as a mechanism of communication, which is allocated for the federal um, central of uh, political communication, trying to take the people away from their thinking and uh, telling them, if you think what we think, you're right. <coughs> which is exactly what we see um, consistently since March 2020. And also, uh, the closing of discourse means chronicle confusion, which must be triggered. And uh, I think this jumble mumble of figures, which I see here, and if I look at that 
against that background <clears throat> that uh, may even be intentful and the RKI would do a good job if they presented transparent figures. Uh, however, the point that you can die of corona without symptoms, that was new to me. I thought I had seen everything and I was taken by surprise. <laughs> however, we also discussed the question uh, if it is comparable to the flu. And the question was, how does he explain that last winter we sounded the alarms if the event incident, uh, incidence values were above 100, and now we are above 1,000. <clears throat> Whether that uh, explains the success of the vaccination campaign, and he said, well, you can't really put it that way. Um, there is a couple of uh, factors that play a role, amongst others, the behavior of the people, and the incidents cannot be taken absolutely uh, because the hospitalizations and the severe cases have been reduced in numbers. <clears throat> well, for me, that means the colleague from Rocket Institute uh, says that uh, the incidence value as a measuring base for the infection and the success of measures is completely uh, useless, uh, for example, to show whether a vaccination campaign is successful. And I do think that we do need a reliable standard to measure our actions against. And I'm looking forward to hear a an answer to that, what that standard should be that we should agree on, agree on in order to decide whether we are successful or not. And the standard that has been apparently applied in the past seems to be rather weak. And the development of the incidence value doesn't seem to show the success of a vaccination campaign that we have been put through. Well, the efficiency and efficacy of the vaccinations has remained disputable, and I think that was the major takeaway from the morning session. Well, Martin, the uh, efficacy of the vaccination, what remains if you say before the campaign, vaccination campaign, the incidence was uh, around 100, afterwards it was in excess of 1,000. We are all convinced that the PCR uh, test values give no indication of the infection. That's the core issue, that the PCR test as uh, designed by Mr. Drosten is a fake. But what about the dead? Um, I didn't quite understand this. If you can explain that again, 193 dead people um, as opposed to 5,000. Um, or if you look at uh, the detailed figures, it might be even more. Is that all people who died after vaccination or what was the evaluation there? Well, in the weekly report from 28th of April, it was, I think, <clears throat> Actually, I would have to open. I don't think I have. I have to look it up. I don't have that report with me, so I have to do it from my memory. I think the dead were mostly without vaccinations. It's also interesting that Mr. Wichmann 
kept on pointing out that the people who were initially vaccinated, those who got the first shot or not, are not a fortnight after the second shot, um, are kind of outside of that observation. That's at least how I understood that weekly report. Okay, it doesn't mean much, but okay. However, we would need to look at these figures in more detail. And now we seem to have dropped the line. And we need to verify these figures in more detail. So, did I understand that correctly? At the end of the day, they couldn't prove that they feel that it is efficacy, uh, uh, that it has efficacy, or it went back and forth, or what? Well, it was interesting to hear that they said the uh, surveillance data they have are not reliable because they um, were um, not collected properly. It was, would be much better to observe cohorts and study these. This is why they referred to that, because they said this, and that's how I understood him, took the data proactively and not passively like we have um, in the figures of the official reports. That is a very interesting point of view, an argument that I can surely follow, but it means that the passive reporting system of the uh, side effects uh, seems to have some weaknesses as to which it is important to carry out observation studies with active approaching of um, of cases, and that is something that I will have to take up in my next writing, um, as it does actually substantiate our presentation that the side effects of the um, vaccinations are not thoroughly reported. And that is a good takeover to uh, the afternoon session where we had Paul Menzner from the Paul, Robert, from the Paul Ehrlich Institute. And we heard interesting things. Uh, Mr. Menzner said when the uh, letter uh, Provita was published, he had had a, a meeting with uh, Mr. Schürfendt, um, the former um, CEO of uh, BKK Insurance Company, who was let go after he had uh, published this uh, letter. Um, and he said that he found the uh, data very interesting, but unfortunately, the CEO had been uh, retired and uh, the new CEO had refused to part with the data. So Mr. Menzner didn't give me the impression, uh, nor did Winfried Mills, that they were really interested in this data. So we can see a first weakness of our reporting system. Paragraph six, uh, um, paragraph one, sentence three, uh, obliges physicians to report even the suspicion of um, uh, damage from the vaccination so that there is any sort of um, uh, unusual reaction. We have um, Article 13, uh, Para 5 of this uh, Infection Protection Act, uh, where the insurance companies have uh, are obliged to uh, make um, uh, analyses. And sorry, um, uh, the uh, insurance companies are not involved in this um, reporting requirement. And last Tuesday, um, we heard. Well, we heard that if 
Parliament uh, thinks about an uh, update of the Infection Protection Act, um, they will have to give uh, more uh, requirements to RKI um, who are not um, offering uh, data um, sharing with the insurance companies. So uh, this is unacceptable. Before the last uh, court session, um, I didn't have a chance to uh, look at whether uh, the uh, data uh, can be ordered by the court to be um, published uh, by um, or disclosed by RKI, whether uh, the people who do not uh, disclose figures uh, can be um, obliged by court. So we can't uh, do this. Uh, there is no legal obligation, um, no possibility to find people who don't disclose these um, data. So the court has to uh, act here. And of course, the people who analyze this data um, are unqualified. There are uh, 13 students, um, 13 interns who really should be um, pursuing their uh, studies. They're not uh, really, their job is not really to uh, analyze vaccination data. So RKI needs to um, increase the number of staff and actually use qualified staff. So we have certainly uh, some, oh, it's very likely that we have some delay in uh, analyzing analysis of the data because these 13 people won't be able to keep up. So then we ask the question which uh, have been analyzed in interesting uh, articles in Rubicon and others. How uh, do we have to, what's our uh, analysis of um, figures by RKI? Uh, so there's always a difference between observed and expected uh, data. So. It means I look at uh, how many dead uh, did I observe in a, a certain period X and how many did I expect. There's always a deviation. Uh, people don't always uh, die at the same rate. But if the deviation is excessive, I think um, as soon as you have a 1.5-fold uh, deviation, if I understood it right, that's a potential signal for risk. But I have to look uh, for um, the uh, corona uh, dead and other uh, dead people have to be looked at in the same cohort. And that is not being done. That's what we complained about. If I take a look at, I look at all the people who died after um, uh, vaccination and people who uh, were, uh, who died um, of COVID, then I'm comparing apples and pears. I have to look at how many people died uh, of COVID or uh, the vaccination, how many people uh, did I expect to, uh, to die altogether. So the first part of the proof of the evidence given in uh, on Wednesday is that the federal administrative court wants to um, know, uh, learn from RKI how they compile their uh, statistical data. And of course, we have to find out ourselves about uh, what are the um, statistical requirements so that we can ask intelligent questions. We don't know how these data are compiled. And what's really important is that 90% of all 
vaccination reaction uh, reported are not reported by doctors but by family members and that led to discussions on Wednesday I'll get back to that later on so I learned a lot and I think Mr. Menzner didn't sound like he was sent to Leipzig to hush things up but nevertheless we found massive weaknesses in the system of um, vaccination damage reporting that we were able to expose and this will continue on Tuesday um, but uh, Ulrike Kamera also needs to um, report and she uh, will speak about the uselessness of PCR tests um, and she will mention differential diagnostics um, so that a uh, swab will uh, be sufficient to identify whether somebody is ill or not is, as she says, uh, not what uh, students are taught at med school. And then uh, what Chankarachetki uh, probably said here in uh, the Corona Committee, uh, she uh, said that in um, treating COVID, we have to observe whether there's an allergic reaction, which you can see um, after day eight, and then you have to give antihistamines and other uh, anti-allergic uh, drugs. And she also explained that this virus can only come from the lab. She did that uh, in the presence of Robert Wolf, who works at the Federal Institute of Microbiology and who also in his reply um, responded uh, very uh, peaked. He said it wasn't even pseudoscientific. If uh, the PCR test uh, is run with a certain uh, um, diagnostic standards, then you could make an, a, a statement on that basis and the labs in their own interests, they would do it uh, properly. Otherwise, they'd uh, contravene the law and they were uh, closely monitored and Ms. Kemmerer said that uh, there are massive uh, laxness uh, cases in uh, the labs where, for instance, uh, swabs are sent to external uh, service providers. What happens in those labs is uh, what we don't know and that's part of our problem that we don't know what happens behind the closed doors of such a lab, right? So. But the idea was to make uh, to demonstrate that the PCR test doesn't prove anything, and that therefore the risk um, posed by this virus is dramatically overblown, um, based on no diagnostic basis. So that concluded uh, Tuesday at uh, 7 p.m. The um, uh, judge said from the beginning that we won't sit um, up until 8 or 10 p.m. like the last time. Um, that's understandable. And then the next day, Tom Lausen uh, spoke, data analyst from Hamburg, and he spoke about the dramatic discrepancy between the number of invoices for um, vaccination damages, uh, uh, for vaccination damage treatments on the one hand and the numbers reported by the physicians 
I had often thought that many physicians won't uh, report because they have to overcome psychological barriers. They have to admit to themselves that my own vaccination wasn't a good idea. They may have to admit to themselves if I um, have to allocate certain um, uh, consequences uh, to my own vaccinations. So I uh, may actually be um, subject to liability. And I also hoped so hard that this uh, would be successful, the, the vaccination. Um, I can't accept this uh, being uh, completely wrong. However, I don't know if I interpreted it right, but it seems uh, to be the case that uh, there is massive underreporting. Maybe there is a psychological aspect. Uh, or else, maybe they um, get no mon uh, money for um, the reports. And it's a lot more. Um, effort than um, writing an invoice for an, a jab. And um, maybe that is the uh, driving force here. And that has been pointed out in uh, the Corona Committee before. And I've also re um, referenced the um, appropriate publications in my um, submissals. Maybe I will have to get back to that in the future. On the other hand, the court when the armed forces uh, said that uh, these are uh, uh, diagnoses and it's a bit of a headache and then this is still on the uh, invoices. Uh, well, um, headache um, can be point uh, can point to more severe um, complications that need to be uh, treated so we can't uh, see it as uh, all identical. So we can only estimate how many of them are serious vaccination damage cases and which one are false alarm. But nevertheless, the courts, that is an important finding. In the end, it cannot be uh, denied that the uh, reporting requirements as uh, established by law are not being fulfilled. So that's how far we got by now. We can debate the uh, extent of the um, underreporting, but that there is underreporting uh, there is no doubt on the side of the court anymore. What we will also hear, however, is, and I uh, had confronted Mr. Minson with the question of how bad is your batch? Uh, that uh, accord, according to the VAERS database um, that captures the um, vaccination uh, damage cases in the US, it um, becomes apparent that very uh, few batches are responsible for a large number of um, the, uh, uh, the, the complications caused by the vaccinations. Mr. Menzner didn't know about it when I confronted him with it. Uh, and this may be credible that he didn't know about it, but the uh, court will listen to a representative of uh, the PEI uh, concerning batch uh, testing. So we'll be able to ask questions there. So we have the possibility of drilling down uh, further critically, and it'll be up to us to deliver here. Martin, how did you judge or assess the conduction of the court? Are they interested in uh, real findings? I believe so. One interesting statement was made when we asked uh, uh, for additional um, uh, finding of evidence or a hearing of evidence, and this was rejected. We had brought along some experts that we wanted to hear concerning the um, um, 
efficacy of the um, vaccinations. The court did not seem to be convinced by the um, uh, expert knowledge of these experts that we uh, presented, um, and we can't um, uh, force them. Uh, and the judge also said that um, he can't listen to every expert, otherwise he doesn't know where to stop. And that seems to show that the uh, court seems to be very interested in finding the truth, but they also see the limits imposed on um, the court. Uh, a court cannot look at all the um, mistakes and compensate for all the mistakes that were made in licensing um, vaccinations, in monitoring uh, vaccinations. Um, it cannot uh, replace the evaluation of the efficacy of um, the vaccinations um, that should have been uh, analyzed by the appropriate committee. It can't uh, make up for all the uh, incorrect information. Uh, if all the topics that we have already uh, raised and if they'd been uh, covered by the mainstream media, then we would have been out of this story a long time ago because no uh, politician could have supported it anymore. I think this court case, even now, no matter what the upshot uh, is, is a declaration of bankruptcy of mainstream media. Tagesspiegel, Der Spiegel, uh, ZDF, all the mainstream media newscasts and um, um, fact checkers and whatever, no matter what their names be, they all, by being asked the questions by the court, that uh, the, the questions that the court asked, they've been really exposed already. And here, actually, it is necessary that they look at the evidence. They should need to go to the detail that allows them to assess whether there is more benefit than harm caused by the jabs. Well, Viviana, I think that if we manage to make it clear that many aspects of this vaccine are only experimental in nature, and if we uh, manage to make it clear that the uh, vaccination um, damage uh, is such a big black hole that we cannot uh, go uh, into every detail, then we've gained a lot already. The court can't go into all that detail, but that is what I want to achieve. We mustn't overcharge uh, the court. Those are not uh, trained vaccinologists, virologists, or epidemiologists. They're not trained statisticians. I still believe that this court is interested in finding um, the truth, finding out the truth. Otherwise, they could have ended it on Wednesday, and they didn't. Okay, Martin. I I do see that the court tries to find out whether the uh, jabs are effective or are they dangerous. Both levels. That is my impression. Um, both levels seem to be massively covered up by the other side. Maybe they're not interested, uh, they're not informed, 
and uh, so they send respective people to the court. But two more questions. You just said it's enough if the court finds out that this is mostly experimental and that the registration of the side effects is a black hole. That should lead the court to say no mandatory vaccinations on that basis. And there's more. There's another report confirming this from Italy, saying that in the Sicily court, which was uh, one where one there, I think uh, this is at the Constitutional Court, which is just as corrupt as ours. However, they said this is not a vaccination; it is experimental subject substances. The second thing is quite new, which is the assessment of the fifty-five thousand. Uh, page document published by Pfizer and BioNTech. Both of them have been evaluated in the US, and uh, the result has been uh, reported to us by Naomi Wolf. And uh, that is disastrous. And the worst thing is that in the Proceedings, which um, was in the Brooke Jackson trial against Pfizer, that in that trial, Pfizer came up, said, said they were accused of not having proper data. Um, they did covered up the deaths. They doctored the data, massively covered up deaths. And they defended, saying, we don't, didn't need to follow any rules because we were under the special OTC uh, agreement, over transaction authority uh, agreement, with the uh, Ministry of Defense. And on that basis, we did not need to follow any rule at all. But that has not been mentioned in that trial. If not, I can give you the details on that. <laughs> no, it introduced that into um, the um, case. So the court had a uh, certain skepticism to um, uh, say that whether the armed forces, the German armed forces, have to look at the uh, US case here. But the court didn't want to go there. Uh, I will maybe uh, include it in my submissal again. Now, what would I do if I were the Federal Minister of Defense? Well, then, I, I think I read that Pfizer had 3.7% of uh, um, test participants um, killed over in the first uh, study. If I um, projected that to all the um, the entire army um, with the same percentage through one single substance which is injected in uh, Germany and in the US, if I get this kind of alarm signal from the US, I would have stopped the whole thing as Minister of Defense immediately. The whole spirit uh, in, the, in the MOD is shown in a um, document uh, of the 11th of May published by the armed forces. They uh, dealt with the statements uh, um, by Zuhrit Bhakti made on the 2nd of May uh, referencing different studies, among others, case studies. And there was one case study 
of a life-threatening thrombosis and uh, the Federal Ministry of Defense wrote um, on this case, well, with such and such a uh, uh, damage, it is a uh, life-threatening but very rare side effect. Um, the data is known and we include it in our uh, evaluation. Um, it is of no um, real relevance. We have to be careful to take this into a clinical uh, practice. My reply was, well, people, you know that you can die of this. You know it. Don't matter risk-benefit evaluation. Don't matter if people die off. The life of the individual soldier doesn't count uh, for the armed forces, apparently. And I would like to uh, refer to uh, Georg Barner's uh, uh, calculation of uh, the incidents at the Federal uh, Armed Forces. Uh, they went up to uh, by 4,000% after the uh, vaccination mandate was uh, established. And one of the armed forces uh, physicians still claimed that the incidence decreased by 50% after the vaccination. And that was so uh, far removed from reality that I cannot expect this to be negligence only, um, uh, this statement. What I want to say with this, we have very uh, different cases and um, some uh, individual uh, cases were uh, told us Hören um, who uh, is a lawyer as well in this uh, case, who uh, spoke about uh, individual cases, then Victor uh, Röhring spoke about the um, licensing uh, processes. So our submissals uh, take um, consideration of all this. We've also offered uh, additional evidence for the next time concerning the question of do these incidences or other values uh, correspond to um, society at large. It's possible that if we have more vaccinations among soldiers uh, as a percentage compared to um, society at large, um, that at least this comparison could speak against the uh, efficacy of the vaccination. I don't know the um, federal administrator, of course, has to uh, decide on this uh, request. I'm not sure if they've taken a decision on this yet. I'm only, I've only referred, uh, returned home from uh, Bielefeld yesterday, and I have to prepare my uh, lecture for today. So I uh, didn't have a chance to look at this in more detail. Martin, one more point. I know that the court there has not interest, not taken any interest in what's going on in other countries. But maybe we may remind you that there was a similar situation, maybe not as dramatic, which was with um, thalidomide. Um, in these cases, in the thalidomide cases, um, which led to the uh, Medical Act as such, 
it was the Americans who prohibited it because they saw how high the risk of adverse effects were. In Germany, nobody was interested at all. So with an open eye, they accepted that many people would be disabled. And uh, that is something we can still see today. <clears throat> we can maybe point out that um, you may happily wait until 20, 30, 50,000 soldiers drop dead, but remember there was a role model which was thalidomide. And uh, the same experiment, uh, experimental drug which was in detail studied in the US. The US is always light years ahead of us. The same thing is used without any consideration in Germany. While there are observations and findings in the US that it is not only just completely ineffective, but also not safe. Maybe we should remind the court and the army that this may have consequences. <coughs> well, that was some, would be something for the army to know. My impression, however, is that they want to carry out that mandatory vaccination agenda no matter what it costs. That is the impression that I gather from everything that I hear and read from the army. Um, the vaccinations are praised to no good and the positions of the people involved in the proceedings could not be more contrastive. However, I will, of course, have to consult with the team as to how we are going to proceed in the future. But I could well imagine that we say maybe what we have collected so far is enough to help this trial to be successful. You never know. It'll only be over when the verdict is told and not a second earlier. And since then, um, the uh, outcome is completely pending and I do see me and the team in the obligation to maybe provide some more input where we need to do some more work to convince the judges. Well, Martin, uh, could you very briefly, we're under pressure of time already, but uh, could you say something about the decision of the Administrative Court of Hanover of the 11th of May, uh, where uh, the core sentence was that the uh, submission of a um, requirements, um, uh, uh, the submission of proof of um, immunization cannot be imposed um, by fines. Um, is that something you could comment on? Yes, that is very interesting. This uh, decision, however, is not uh, legally binding yet. The point is, if the authorities say supply um, the presentation of proof of uh, immunity, otherwise we'll force you to, as long as soon as I uh, execute administrative forced, that means I order people to get vaccinated if they are not. And um, this is which uh, something that is not 
uh, to be taken from the law. It doesn't say jabs, whatever costs there are, but it says uh, jab or out. And um, that is what the authorities say. And I'm very happy to um, present this topic as a whole in the committee, but um, this is a singular decision <clears throat> taken out of the context for the audience. Okay, um, but would you see it as a kind of a breakthrough if that decision were not overturned? Well, at least the consequence would be that the health authorities, if they can't execute or enforce it, they will have to say, okay, we can't enforce it um, and it hasn't been presented, so we don't allow people in. The question is um, if that is uh, um, a, an administration act uh, according to paragraph 28, sentence 5, uh, sentence 1, uh, paragraph uh, 37, 3, sentence 8, AE, I think, that is uh, subject to uh, the uh, payment of a fee if somebody doesn't subject that proof in due time, and that due time is set by the authority, and this is why this uh, has an ordering character. Um, uh, not following that order leads to a fine, um, and this is something that I can't execute because that will lead me to a mandatory vaccination. I think that will have massive consequences for the administration law if I give someone a two-week um, a two-week period to prove immunization, then I think according to um, the German law, this is a void because nobody can comply with that within two weeks. So, and this again leads to the fact that if this Administration Act is void, there can't be any sanction connected to not fulfilling it. So there is a load of questions connected to it, which I would be happy to provide in a separate meeting. If I did that today, you would have to um, send your other guests off. Okay, I just want to do a short statement. We can have a separate uh, um, interview on this in more detail. All right, so it remains interesting in Leipzig. Uh, who um, have you uh, lined up and other uh, witnesses or experts that have been uh, um, summoned? No, we know there's two from PIA who are going to come and whatever what other evidence there will be presented will be subject of other decisions we have made more applications what the court is going to do with it is yet pending we'll have to wait and see however i'm someone who rather not like uh, who would rather not look into the crystal ball as far as court's behavior is concerned because i don't want to spark uh, uh, wrong hopes nor destroy uh, real hopes so well martin from my point of view uh, what will happen is this if all the modelers such as mr drosten and others 
dare give figures, um, I can do that as well. So I believe that the administrator, of course, will either say, um, end this all, um, based on, on the evidence that we've provided, or the body count will decide. That the body count will have a massive impact is already shown by the existing figures. And that is known to anyone who has dealt with family members uh, of, of people who have been victimized. Even though this uh, should not have come to the fore through the figures in full yet, I hope that you uh, are right in judging that there is enough evidence to convince the court that it is first an experimental substance and secondly, the uh, reporting registers are a black hole. And if that is not sufficient to stop it all, then the body count will decide. Quite right, yes. However, if the body count decides there's going to be uh, much emotional resilience, resilience necessary, not a very nice vision, vision. I do not wish for anyone to have that consequence if they had taken the jab. But um, that's why what that trial is all about in the end. If that vaccination were safe and we would just talk about efficacy, I don't think our uh, clients would have gone so far that uh, all of this trial is uh, is going that way it is is because the people involved do see that this is not a child's game uh, people are scared of taking the jab because they run the risk of uh, severe permanent damage or a maybe even death and i think this question is much more difficult and much more um, severe whether the risk of transfer is reduced by 10, 20, or 30% does not really matter to me. If uh, I can be sure that nothing will happen to me if I take the jab, but this is what I can't be sure of. Yeah, absolutely right. Martin, you'll keep us posted. Yes. Whenever there is something, you will hear from me. Okay, thank you very much then uh, from this frontline report, as it were. Um, then let's uh, look at the next guest. We have a topic now that is very interesting. It's about the um, basic law of Germany, basically the Constitution. We have two guests here, and I think uh, they came in together. And first, um, Heinz Kruse will, is supposed to take the floor. He is. Um, with us via Zoom. He is an author and former head of the Department of Economics in Hanover. He is a human rights activist. Um, Ralph Bös is a human rights activist. He's here in person and ensured that hard force sanctions, i.e. Social Security sanctions, uh, were brought before the Federal Constitutional Court and declared unconstitutional so people could lose all their Social Security benefits if they had uh, failed to meet vaccination requirements three times uh, over so people could easily lose everything and the Constitutional Court declared this to be unconstitutional, at least um, the bones of uh, these um, regulations. Um, Heinz Kruse, can you hear us? Yes. Let me try. 
Well, we were going about um, the renewal of the Federal Republic of Germany on its own ideals. Now, I don't know how you um, split up uh, the topic, but um, anyone who feels like they should start, get started. Okay, if you are happy on with it, I'll give it a start. I, I don't want to keep the speech um, that I prepared because I wanted to pick up on what had just been uh, reported. What the colleague has reported is, besides the political questions and problems involved, has uh, raised a number of factual issues, theoretical and administrative nature. How does an administration address information? How does it get to information that makes sense? That is the question which uh, was in the background of that presentation. At least for me and the German political administration, it is no surprise that we have information which altogether does not make sense but is very destructive to a high degree. That is a causal political failure because this is expression of the problem that our political administration is structured in a way that it is in, uh, that is inadequate to the political tasks that we have at hand. Years ago, we have started to address the question of a constitutional uh, power of the people because we do think a democracy can only remain a democracy if the people can take sovereign uh, hold of the role and by uh, law it can't because the people have been cut off from their constitutional powers and today we have exactly the distortion which we pointed out years ago which is the disconnection of an administrative system from the people not of its of its interests but also of the reality that the people live in and that means the people, as the constitutional power, have been mistrusted. Its most important democratic, democratic rights have been stripped from it. And that does not only have an effect on the constitution itself, it also has an effect on the practical politics. We are in a phase of a transformation process, if I may call it that. We know that we are facing digitalization, and in that context, our industry will have to review and lose its uh, material base. This industry, uh, the mistakes that we have been make uh, that we've made are structural economic prob uh, mistakes which lead germany and europe to lose its fitness for future we do not only le lose compatibility but the fitness for the future and against that background 
we have the very big question, how will we be able to readjust the political administrative processes to give them sense, to align them with real existing problems and implement them in the interests of the people. There is no approach to politics to that in so far as yet. One major base for this is the Constitution, but the Constitution alone is not enough. We also have to ask, how can we make political reality um, to be able to act in that uh, reality? And the connections to the corona politics are evident. Corona politics are an example for greediness, insecurity, and helplessness documenting the political inability to act. It does not only show that individual facets of the corona politics are uh, legally questionable what and uh, are um, balanced off by whatever measures, but the structure of the helplessness against corona has shown that politics are completely detached from the challenges of real life. And that is the point that we need to address, and that is the point where I um, would um, not go into the theoretical detail here. I would rather pass the stage to Rolf, and I'm ready to answer questions after his presentation. Well, well, we have the problem in politics that competences are always escalated upwards. Um, first, the EU, now WHO, is supposed to have the competence of interfering without our politicians having any uh, say anymore in a pandemic. Then we have a lot of, uh, by the World Economic Forum, where even the politicians are actually produced, who are then installed here by now, etc., etc. So the competences are all escalated upwards, and what Germany um, lacks is a subsidiarity um, downgrading uh, the um, competences. The Constitution says uh, all power emanates from the people, not from the elites. So we have our federal president, Mr. Um, um, uh, Mr. Gauck. We used to have him, uh, the president of the hearts. He said not the elites are the problem, but the population is the problem. And we have the polar opposite view. Uh, the elites are the huge problem, and they're completely detached from reality and can't really handle the uh, reality anymore. We couldn't see it in the economic developments that we uh, see now. Uh, we can see how the basis is being uh, destroyed in the context uh, of the war. Uh, we can see it in the context of Corona, uh, and everything is collapsing all around us. So that is the problem. The main problem from my point of view, from our view, is how can we um, get everything back to uh, Article 20 of the uh, Constitution, which says all power emanates from the people, uh, so that the power emanates from people rather than from elites who actually goad us uh, along and um, uh, with the um, support of the media who have been greased appropriately or otherwise motivated, yes. And so what is the approach? Well, what was uh, quite obvious that when Corona started, many people uh, felt that we have to go back to the grassroots. 
they felt that uh, the constitution is longer, no longer upheld. And that's a huge problem in uh, questions of demonstrations or the right to uh, physical integrity. And there are uh, no end of stories by now. Um, freedom of speech isn't so easy anymore, etc., etc. So um, basically, the constitution is longer upheld, and so many people uh, believe that we need a new constitution. And I think that this is a wrong departure, because we don't have the problem that the constitution is bad, but that the politicians don't implement it anymore. And so the question that uh, came uh, that arose for us, we, we had it really a long time before uh, Corona. This has been something that has been um, motivating us for a long time. Um, um, it has been obvious for a long time that the Constitution is to be undermined and actually uh, be um, discontinued, basically. So how can uh, people seize power back so that they really have uh, the competence? Yes, we saw that with, uh, and we were quite aghast to, to observe that our constitutional rights were um, suddenly suspended, apparently. And you, uh, we had this legal case where um, we tried to um, fend this off legally, but all, all of a sudden, uh, division of labor, uh, division of uh, separation of powers suddenly no longer applies. And um, we have um, representatives um, of um, business, basically, who um, uh, intervene. So, uh, but what is the concrete idea to um, re-empower the constitution, as it were? Well, there's a beautiful sentence by Philip Kovsche, an economic philosopher, um, who said, "If you want to defend democracy, you have to keep developing it." I think it's a beautiful sentence. It's the same uh, with the uh, telephone. Um, if uh, you don't uh, keep developing, then uh, you become obsolete. And in the pol political field, it's uh, most uh, difficult to develop. Um, same in the field of philosophy. So there are fields where it's very difficult to uh, develop um, others. In other fields, it's easier. Technical development, for instance, is incredibly fast. It keeps bypassing us. But now um, it's a question of democracy. So instead of having a constitutional um, assembly um, or a constitution establishing assembly, as it's called in Germany, um, is um, um, that would establish a, a constitution for the people, uh, we have the um, opposite approach. Uh, namely, we make the basic law uh, into a constitution. The uh, fathers of the, uh, of the basic law uh, suffered from the fact that uh, Germany was divided. Um, so the Western uh, zones um, had full power and everything. Uh, if the power had decided anything that the allies in the Western zones um, didn't like, um, then um, the um, occupying forces could have simply uh, stopped the people from doing it. So the fathers of the Constitution uh, said basically that the Constitution is nothing but the legal 
self-determination of the freedom of a people. That is the that was the ideal of Carlos Schmidt. And he said it's not possible under the conditions that prevail. So they did two things with a, a basic law. They didn't call it the Constitution for the uh, first thing. Uh, basic law is what the occupying force uh, gives the occupied uh, land. Uh, so they do what uh, the occupier wants. And they didn't say uh, basic law of the Federal Republic, but it says basic law for the uh, Federal Republic of Germany because it was um, imposed on it. And he wrote that this basic law will uh, lose its um, uh, validity as soon as a constitution has been established by the whole German people. And that still applies today, so that means that the basic law is not a constitution. I keep saying for our politicians, they always keep claiming that it is a constitution. That's a big uh, discussion among politicians and uh, legal experts. I would say it would be good if it was the constitution because the name, uh, the, the framework of their activities uh, has been uh, established here. Uh, for them, it has to be the Constitution, but not for the people, because the people haven't uh, decided on it independently yet. So, um, if I own the castle, I um, establish the rules of the house, and then um, this applies to everybody, but I have sovereignty. It's not established by uh, the people who live in the castle. And this has not yet been done by the people. Time is ripe uh, for people to seize this uh, opportunity because our politicians are beginning to act contrary to the basic law and we really have to think about what we can do to change the situation. So basically um, this um, according to article 46 the people would have the opportunity to form a constitution for example during the reunification of the two Germanys which didn't take place and uh, it didn't take place, yes. Um, at the time, we didn't have the time, and the Allies had the rule, and they refrained from carrying out the rules. Um, if there were a constitutional assembly prior to the reunification, they would have decided something um, that the Allies didn't want. The question was if they had stopped it, and that would have been the opportunity. There were time issues at the time. Uh, a constitutional assembly could take more time than it was uh, possible at the time. Um, these were the problems. So this is why um, the topic was um, taken off the agenda. However, there were round tables. Um, aiming for this, the Greens aimed for this, and it was officially uh, uh, taken down from the agenda, maybe because of the time issues, however. <clears throat> well, I have to say, I'm quite identified, identify strongly with our basic law, be it a law or a constitution. I think it's very good what's inside, and we've discussed this a number of times because, for example, it ranks all around the, dig the human dignity and not some kind of uh, 
general benefit, uh, but it's the individual that has to be protected and is protected. And many of the rights and in individual laws based on this, on the rights of freedom and the rights of defense that are given there in the basic law. And your idea is that the basic law will stay as it is, but we take it and turn it into a constitution. Well, yes, leaving it completely as it is um, is uh, not quite possible because the Allies put things in uh, that should go out and own the over 70 years, lots of things have been put in which are quite problematic and that have been changed to make them problematic. And um, there are, on the other side, many things missing to make it fit for the future. So there is a need for action, which has to be considered. So if we just make the basic law um, to the Constitution, we would uh, cement the existing circumstances. And that is what, no, what wouldn't do any good. We have three questions. Um, which we could show on the screen. This is our website, by the way, our constitution. And at the bottom, we see what the three questions are. We ask three questions and, um, saying, I agree that our basic law should be made the constitution um, and everything which is in the basic law as today would remain. The second is I do agree that the right of uh, publicists can be, uh, must be fully implemented. And the second is that changes in the constitution can only be done by the judgment and ruling of the people. I uh, would like to show what that means. It is a plebiscite, a popular vote. For example, do we want to take war outside? What is our war doing, our um, military doing at the Hindukush, which was uh, asked 20 years ago? Do we want to be the spearhead against Russia? A question that we need to discuss now. The second is, what do we think about the EU? Is it right if a parliament gives its competency to non-democratic institutions? These are questions that we could ask. Uh, we could ask uh, what about the American um, military operations in Rammstein. What is our position to NATO? to NATO, all of this would be subject to a plebiscite. Everything where we are locked up and we can't really say anything, and we wonder that our politicians do things that are completely different from the progress that they've told us, that would be full uh, referenda uh, in the Constitution. So <clears throat> uh, our uh, co-participation by state propaganda um, that people are implemented with a judgment um, uh, uh, without thinking. And the second thing, uh, the third thing is that we should have the competency that we have made the basic law our constitution, but we must make sure that the constitution is adaptable 
and not by others. Today, it is changed by the uh, politicians according to principles where we can wonder whether they are principles at all so that we maintain sovereignty about uh, uh, on the Constitution by the people. That is the minimum requirement. This is what we have on the internet webpage unsere-verfassung-minus-de, where you can vote on these three questions. I think it is good. Do you want to add something? Yes, one more aspect to it. Uh, pointing out a constitution has to be formally enforced that means there has to be a decision made by the people that the content of the basic law must be made a constitution. And the second aspect is that we don't have the constitution as a framework, but we have a constitutional reality. And this structural reality or the political reality of our people does not correspond to the times that we live in. We have basic questions that uh, we have asked in the context, and we can't answer in the context of our administration, starting with digitalization, uh, with the structural problems in our environment, and it also includes the question, how can we run the economy under ecologic aspects? Um, in a digitized world, so we have to get into that process of change and consider two aspects. One is the constitution as a framework for a new political democratic reality that has to be answered politically. And in the German parties, even um, uh, you may see this as negative, in the German party uh, landscape, landscape um, there is maybe verbal addressing, uh, addressing or masturbation on this, but apart from that, there is no approach that takes these uh, challenges in a content matter. That means we need a two-sided uh, approach here which is an effective constitution and the reality of a political reform, which is the expression of that constitution. In all briefness, Heinz and Ralph, uh, you both said, you've just said so, Heinz, that uh, we have a constitutional reality besides the formal uh, possibly a utopian framework that we are in now. Uh, you have both pointed out that it is a certain risk if our elites, we had a uh, Senator Roberts from um, uh, Australia who called these elites as predators, and I think he's right. If they pass our sovereignty to non-democratic institutions like the WHO, like the WAEF, 
and the NATO and so on. Is the core of the problem not that if we take that theory of the double state, isn't the core of the problem that on the one side we have a theoretical discussion on what is going on with that constitution, which is taken out of its hinges, as we all have noted, and on the other side we can clearly see that the so-called elites um, maybe overdoing it uh, have uh, really betrayed us because they are either blackmails or bought by exactly those people who really staged what we are just seeing now. Doesn't it mean that by now we should get away from these theoretical discussions and move towards the reality and find what is really going on? Because while some of us are theoretically discussing uh, things with the Constitutional Court, uh, whether possibly the figures in the U.S. Um, are to be taken seriously or not, shouldn't we think why so many people are just leaving the country? Request really was uh, not only to have a theoretical debate about a constitution, but to take it to the practical level. We really have a problem. I won't speak about elites uh, because I'm not confident about this when I think about certain people, but I would like to speak of the political system. Our political system has decoupled from the people, has become a separate entity becoming part of a global self-appointed elite or self-appointed decision-making level, which is independent of the uh, dwarf-like existence of German citizens. I think that's a problem, that there's no feedback anymore. And this leads to highly practical problems, not only uh, problems of uh, constitutional theory, and they don't solve any problems anymore, as any observer will see. For instance, since 2005, we have been uh, cut off uh, from um, productivity gains, as somebody has recently published. We are basically destroying the basis of our wealth without knowing what is supposed to replace them. We are headed for a dark future, the digital future, which doesn't allow us uh, to see its fa facets and structures yet because the knowledge and the creativity of the people play no role in decision-making processes anymore. We have been decoupled from political reality using electoral uh, decisions as a basis for uh, future decisions really is lying because we are deciding about certain lists that are presented to us in the, um, of whose on whose composition and creation we have no influence and decisions by politicians be it a, a war in Russia or the economic uh, tug of war with China or the uh, wars of raw material um, extraction in Mali uh, or whatever, we're decoupled from all of these decisions. 
Now, what seemed to be a factual question in the past, so nobody uh, believes that we are uh, really limited in our future fitness uh, through the war in Afghanistan. But what is happening uh, now in the digital realm has a deep impact on our future uh, viability. And we can see that uh, the political class is uh, incapable of taking the right decisions, are also not qualified to do that. And we, the citizens, have no influence on these decisions for the future anymore. And that is a problem we have. So we have the formal debate about the Constitution, and we have the content uh, debate about um, the political, social, economic, and ecological aspects. And in order to force decisions here, we have to do both in parallel. We have to ask the question about the constitutional theory and answer it, but also we also have to return the political competence to the people. Sorry, I uh, went off a bit of a tangent here. Sorry. Well, answering Rainer's question, I would like to add that it's not a theoretical debate anymore, but we have this point. Uh, vote now. And there it says that the uh, basic law will lose its applicability at the point in time when the German people uh, constitute the constitution and if that happens if enough people vote um, that will be taking effect and uh, the third point is i do agree that content of the uh, constitution can only be um, changed and added by a public referendum uh, so this is the vote which is an element of the fight for power um, we have uh, the problem that Macron uh, proposes to do a constitutional um, assembly in the uh, EU, and uh, he only wants to Germany to be a federal state and not have its own constitution, and by that we'll get a new constitution from above by the so-called elites, and uh, I have problems calling them that, um, uh, we have to initiate a counter-movement saying we want a bottom-up constitution, and that will be possible by this constitution, especially if we see how we do that uh, formally. So um, here I would rather address this in general and push that forward, except uh, apart from looking at it in the theoretical view. Well, what I find very interesting, uh, particularly when you think of uh, that Macron or the EU want to have their own uh, constitution now or that uh, there are activities in that uh, direction. It's fascinating to see that the basic law or the individual constitution seem to be um, in the way of um, uh, the agenda. Uh, we can see it at the WHO where they want to install the WHO constitution um, obligatory for all um, countries now, um, they're also trying to install an EU constitution. So I see a fundamental point here. First of all, of identification with who, I wonder, um, as I said earlier, I uh, identify with the fact that we have a basic law or a constitution that focuses on human dignity. 
um, and that underpins everything. It has historical reasons as well, why it was said that um, we can best uh, fend off the uh, atrocities of the Nazi dictatorship if we uh, put humans at the center of the um, basic law. And I really think that this is um, are putting the finger in the wound, uh, saying that uh, all power emanates from the people. And it says that um, uh, the uh, power of the people emanates uh, from the people uh, in elections and uh, plebiscites. Uh, and so that is actually in the Constitution, yet we don't have plebiscites. And I think that's an, a really, really important thorn in the um, um, the side uh, that this can be um, um, that we really think of what is our innate law our innate right actually that we uh, do this demonstrative act uh, i take it as it uh, is right now even though it should be uh, adjusted here or there, particularly um, to roll back uh, some of the uh, modifications we had over the last few years, um, um, privatizing motorways, etc. But that is not the, at the center of it all. But um, uh, if we uh, can overcome the neoliberal uh, perversions that have been in, uh, installed, that might be a good approach, actually, then. Well, I didn't mean it that way. Uh, it's probably very pragmatic what you are uh, saying. Um, my approach is different. We have created a comprehensive picture in 108 meetings, and my conclusion is that the so-called elites, or as some psychologists have explained, the psychologists that are holding the reins are um, I think you said, is they uh, pro, uh, create um, their politicians themselves, putting them into place who we are so happy to elect, but they're not our politicians. It's their politicians. They are either blackmails or bought or whatever. However, according to my conviction, they do not by no means follow the interests of the German people. And this is the reality, and that's the reality that we have to look at. So while we talk about how to get back to the sovereignty of the people by ourselves, and I think it's very good to um, make that uh, basic law, our constitution, at the same time, we shouldn't lose sight of what so many people in Germany um, are making them mad, which is the conviction that we are here with murderous, dealing with murderous people, and that there is another way to address this by look at looking at this reality as I see it, taking it seriously and reacting to it not only talking about this, uh, whether this uh, basic law should be a constitution, and that's very important because it's the core of it, to give sovereignty to the people. At the same time, we must not remain on the theoretical point. And I know it's a pragmatic view, but um, in the framework of the discussion, we must, uh, it's all right, and you've said it quite clearly, Heinz, that uh, we must not uh, 
watch our sovereignty being lost, we must uh, also make sure that the other approach is reality as well, saying this is highly dangerous. This is about abolishing polit uh, democracy, about abolishing the rule of law. And if we look at the fantasies of population reduction, which have become reality, this is even about killing us. And that is what we need to be considering as well. And everybody who thinks about this, how to get sovereignty back by uh, doing a referenda um, and uh, calling a constitutional assembly doesn't have to, has to look out that you are not shot in the back. Can I comment on this, Rainer? On the one hand, I don't think it's a German problem because we're dealing with a global attack here. And how this pans out in individual countries may uh, diverge here and there a bit, but we can see that if uh, Justin Trudeau uh, brags in Canada that 50% of, of Parliament or a large share of Parliament are also trained by the WEF, then uh, we can see that this is really a global problem. It's not just uh, something um, we can't say we all go to Timbuktu and it's all great there. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, they're all um, dependent, dependent on the International Monetary Fund in this case or whatever. It's always the same problem. No, it's not. It's a global problem, but there are differences. Canada is hit very severely. Germany and Europe are severely hit as well, because that's the first approach to a global government. The EU, you have just said so, the EU should take over the government for Europe. So there's not only nuances, but dramatic differences. If you control Europe and you want to do that, you have to destroy Germany, and that is what's going on. Yeah, but nevertheless, it's a global phenomenon, and uh, um, if Germany um, um, is uh, not destroyed, but then um, if we can avoid that in Germany, then it will be done in the other countries. It's really about the fact that we can only stop all these efforts by everybody rising up. So Germany's history or other activities where we can see the greater picture, where we can see that the population create new systems, they um, decouple from uh, the schooling system, the medical system, etc. They um, detach from all these things. There were different possible approaches, but at the end of the day, it's um, about the separation uh, between us, the many, and um, some totalitarian um, fantasies and activities. That is what we're opposed uh, uh, opposed to well maybe if i if i may repeat we are facing very formal questions concerning the constitution and building up of the structure of a state and that is a constitutional reality um, which currently doesn't respond to the reality they are simply uh, old and this is necessary to do. The actual problem is in the di disconnection of the political system from our reality. <clears throat> if there are ministers 
who keep on talking about equality of EU and NATO, they are actually preparing a world government, which they will form and which they will form without any feedback from the German people or the European people for that matter. So, uh, in that sense, I agree with you, Rainer, that we have a practical reality which is neither corresponding to democratic standards, and that's the point. Um, it does not correspond to the sense of what needs to be done looking at globalization and uh, digitization. We are not a modern country anymore. We, not are, we are not technically dominating. Basically, we are an old industrial state losing uh, or cutting off the industrial branch it unfortunately still sits on because we have missed the starting gun into modern times and uh, that is what makes the situation so difficult if we only say we look at the constitution and criticizing my own earlier approach uh, we are too formal because you can't explain why we actually need it. We have to come up with a content explanation in context of that formal necessity. That's the tightrope that we are on at the moment. But may I make a short comment? I, I just need to get rid of this because I'm not sure do we really have a political structure, an administrative structure that is so far detached from reality uh, because they're um, obsolete or don't we uh, look at a perversion of institutions and systems because, well, we can... Uh, argue whether we need uh, such a uh, huge bureaucracy or not. But if we have a bureaucracy that is fundamentally opposed to the interests of individuals or uh, normal people and does everything that uh, the corporates can uh, keep uh, spreading uh, with all the things that happen behind the scenes and all the things that we've uncovered here, aren't we dealing with an entirely different structure here? And I um, believe that this is a real problem that our institutions, I'm not saying that uh, we uh, could simply uh, place install new people there and everything's great. We need to lean out the whole thing, of course. Probably we don't need uh, so uh, many institutions. Some of them might be uh, superfluous or could be re organized, but I do think we have, uh, we're dealing here with leeches, uh, really, where the body can't really function anymore as it is envisaged by the basic law. But that's a different constellation than simply a system that is obsolete. No, that's no longer um, up to modern requirements. Yes, but isn't that a cognitive dissonance? It doesn't, isn't it? Uh, doesn't it matter whether these structures have been perverted or uh, are overhauled? Isn't it the cognitive dissonance if you think that as the system is unsavable, um, we try to save it at the same time? I would like to make a very important comment at this point, uh, the topic of the Constitution. A Constitution is uh, to political reality like uh, natural uh, law, uh, like uh, laws of nature are what happens in um, engineering. 
So the Constitution is very abstract on the one hand, but if it is actually applicable, then political life can only um, develop within uh, the constra constraints of the Constitution because there are uh, very uh, close limits. Just like with the laws of nature, if I could change the laws of nature, then um, overnight all the uh, technology that's based on these laws of nature would have to change. So this is the Constitution is not something external. It is the fundamental aspect of everything. Um, it, um, when we talk of the abolition of the rule of law of our uh, institutions, etc., that's why the topic of the Constitution is so of such paramount uh, importance, even it sounds so daft to the ear, but it's really uh, like the relationship between the laws of nature and technology. And that is why it's so important that we talk about this only, not about the other things that are all well known. For me, it's important to talk about now about the fact how um, the result on this um, vote will influence uh, our future life because uh, the politicians are part of the basic law, so they will immediately will lose their full legitimacy when the basic law is turned into a constitution. And I would like to explain that in more detail because that's the problem. We don't have the problem that we're fighting with uh, judges. We can't really use them anymore because they are immediately shafted or whatever. So we can't really have any uh, impact like the system um, envisages. The system has been completely corrupted to death, and we can we have to see how we can uh, revive it by having a constitution, by turning the basic law into a constitution. Uh, and I'd like to speak about that. Well, if 40 million people would vote, we will probably get a new basic law integrating it into the constitution. Well, and that the contents of the constitution can only be uh, modified via a plebiscite. And I would like to explain that, uh, if I can. Of course, but the 70% that you need are on the other side. That is my major objection. The politics is completely bought and blackmails, and the 70% to do that are on the other side. But anyway. Yes, but things, they are changing. Um, corona woke up a few people. Uh, soon enough, we won't uh, have heating in the winter anymore. Then more people will wake up. Then the government will go bankrupt. And all of that is coming down the line. And the economy is collapsing. And then uh, many of those 70% will melt away to the other side. And we will realize, people will realize, that things can't go on as they have been going, even if the uh, mainstream media pro um, propagate that. Can we go to page three? There are the... Um, uh, questions again. I agree um, to turn the um, um, the uh, basic law into a constitution, and I agree that uh, um, plebiscites will be part of the constitution. And I agree that the constitution can only be changed by a plebiscite. And it's important to um, take a look at the uh, the links down there. Say the modification of the text of the. Um, basic law in detail and uh, comments. And before you can click yes or no, you uh, will have to see this. And that is important. I would like to show that to you now. If we jump to page four, that's what it looks like. It says the modifications of uh, uh, the um, basic law in turning it into a constitution. Um, 
On the left-hand side, it says, um, you can see the text as they are in the uh, basic law. And on the right-hand side, you can see uh, the modifications as um, uh, uh, they would be in the Constitution. For instance, uh, on the right-hand side, it says, old title, um, basic law for the Federal Republic of Germany. On the right-hand side would be Constitution of the Federal Republic of Germany. And um, wherever the basic law occurs, of course, in the text, it would be changed to the Constitution. Then we have Article 23 in the a um, basic law uh, is called, with a view to establishing a United Europe, the Federal Republic of Germany um, shall participate in the development of the European Union, etc., etc. And then it says um, the uh, Federation can um, transfer sovereign powers by law. And in the Constitution, it says that the federal uh, Federation can transfer uh, pow sovereign powers if the people um, agree um, in a plebiscite according to Article 78A. And the next one is the um, Federation can transfer um, international powers and uh, again it says in the Constitution then as uh, uh, as long as the population agrees, uh, the people agree. And then what does it say in Article 78A that is referred to? And that's interesting. Let's go uh, jump back one page. It's pretty uh, a long page. That's only a small part of this page. And on the left-hand side, it says everything uh, to do with the making of law. Everywhere where it says uh, that laws are made, uh, it says um, the people can make uh, laws uh, by plebiscite. That's all set on the red side, uh, right side. So as soon as I click yes, and as soon as it's one person more than half, or whatever the quorum be at the end of the day, this is decided on. And that is the important thing. No uh, federal president has to come along and say, oh, we have to decide on that, because the federal president is no longer in office because um, the basic law becomes obsolete and that uh, the president is only um, an, um, an instrument of the basic law. So the only uh, constitutional power is the people with the constitution. And this 78A, this article, does not exist in uh, the basic law. Let's look at it now. It says, in the context of the Constitution, uh, it uh, describes uh, the plebiscite. Here, the plebiscite is introduced. It would There would be a huge article about what it is uh, designed. We didn't insert it. We only put a, a short explanation. Article 78 which uh, defines the plebiscite in the context of a constitution is not fully uh, designed. It needs to be an um, assembly uh, that clarifies the constitution until the um, uh, this citizens council has uh, defined the plebiscite. The text um, suggested by more democracy um, that's an ONG, um, an um, um, non-governmental organization, 
that uh, has already determined how a um, plebiscite could be um, designed. Um, so what's interesting is that we don't see it as our task to decide how the Constitution needs to modify it, uh, needs to be uh, determined by us. We only um, make a provisional suggestion and then we do something else. We then call for a uh, Constitution explanatory uh, assembly. That's not a constitutional assembly because we already have a constitution and I would like to explain to you how this uh, assembly would um, assemble. So this would be on Herrn Kimsey um, Island in the castles um, of this uh, island. The basic law was written and there's a lot of space there and we could have an assembly there and people are um, chosen by a raffle so we don't have the lobbyists there so a lot of people will be invited to this explanatory council and now it's interesting there are 11 chapters to the um, uh, basic law so these people are broken down into 11 groups um, and they get external expertise but these are people who have no private interest they're free uh, spirits, they get a uh, good motivation internally and exp external expertise, and then they go through the Constitution, whether it fits or not. Let me give you a few examples. In Chapter 11, they speak about the occupational rights. Do we still want that? Do we need that? That's the question there. In Chapter 9, the um, separation of powers between um, politicians and uh, courts, the question Does that uh, correspond to um, the rule of law, um, or does it reflect um, party politics? And if that is the case, we have to modify Chapter 9. The first chapter um, is the human rights. A lot of things have been messed with there. Uh, for instance, the fact that um, they uh, uh, put the um, um, conscription into the um, basic rights, etc. Um, that's nonsense, of course. So we have um, a large assembly. Um, people would be paid for it. Um, that will be taken from uh, armaments, um, uh, budgets. So they can do that, and um, their food and board will be paid for. Um, and then when they're done, this is submitted to the people for an um, for a vote, and that is a uh, an overall of the basic law in the most democratic way possible. And Marianne Grimmenstein, for instance, is working with her group on many questions that need to be considered in the Constitution. They would have to be injected in this ex um, expert opinions uh, so that people can think about whether or not this is included in the Constitution. Then we'd have a new basis, and on this new basis, Politics have to reinvent itself, just like if you uh, change the laws of nature, you need a new technology. That's the approach here. If I look at this, that's quite comprehensive uh, about the first thing with that uh, voting. I like that. That First of all, I can put a stop loss, so to say, just uh, 
what I do if I uh, speculate on the stock markets. I say the uh, and uh, if many people say that okay, we agree on the status as is. However, this um, can take a long time. That's step two, so to say. One would have this initial start for sure. That makes it interesting. And then one can start thinking on the reality that we are in if all of this actually uh, we can uh, land that uh, land that uh, that plane. And uh, the point is one should immediately start with that kind of clarifi clarifying constitution assembly. Uh, more democracy happened working for years on this, so I think it's very good, or would be very good, if we would uh, maintain the base law and um, protect it for further hollowings and then start thinking on that basis. But what's also important uh, is the second part. Um, the question is, um, plebiscites uh, in the Constitution, but that has to be done because the question is how will we establish the plebiscites in the Constitution? Well, it's not the question of the referendum itself, but uh, this uh, Article 78A, what that is going to be, but there is more points and uh, that should be done in an assembly, shouldn't it? Precisely. But then the question is about the rules of referenda, how many people, how much time, what are the consequences? Those are the uh, implementing laws, not uh, the constitutional aspect, the individual uh, laws, and that's in the second uh, part. Independently of this, a law needs to be made um, that um, defines the implementation of referenda. Uh, until um, a um, citizens' council um, de determines on these laws, the um, uh, federal vote uh, referendum act uh, will apply. So as soon as the constitution is in place, we can have referenda. And this can mean what? Uh, how do we want the EU to look like? What about Rammstein? Do we want to... Um, increase our armaments um, in the war or do we want to, do we want to have a, a pacifistic approach and that is immediately on uh, the uh, the table by clicking yes here and that is immediately involved this is the sub point before we leave to yes and no if we go back to page three you can see that it says here modifications of the um, text of the basic law in detail and that is included in this vote and that's an important point and as soon as there is one person more than half you have the possibility of having such referenda even if the politicians don't like that's the most important thing because the politicians have no say anymore this is the uh, constitutional power they only have uh, power um, on the basis of the basic law not the constitution so we take back this power as the people that's the idea so immediately you get ready to take action if it moved in that way. Well, that's the important thing for me, which uh, distinguishes this from a constitutional assembly. A, a constitutional assembly thinks a lot about what the constitution will look like, but it's still a vassal. It has no legal sovereignty vis-a-vis -vis the state. Here, we immediately 
put ourselves in a sovereign position and then deciding subsequently about the content. So first we seize sovereignty and then talk about the content and the politicians who uh, works in the background, we can immediately take all power away from them. Uh, immediately everything depends on referenda only and that's what we need now. That's my point of view. If we now go to, I believe, page six, then this would be in this uh, referendum uh, itself. It says additional question for further procedures to uh, solve the most urgent questions uh, in the context of the transition to a constitution. A free um, citizens' council is to be um, uh, assembled, which will uh, remove obsolete content from the constitution. Uh, develops uh, it further for future developments and submits it to the people for a vote and uh, then you can approve or not and then you send it and then you have the result and everything has been determined including the uh, constitutional uh, clarification assembly. Well, I do see it is a concept that many thoughts have been spent on and surely a very interesting thought. The question is, how um, can we seize sovereignty immediately without having to discuss a lot with um, politicians who are um, externally controlled by now? And that is... Um, uh, something that you can't do a lot uh, against with new parties because as soon as they grow, uh, you immediately get all the um, molds from uh, left, right and center. We can see that with um, uh, political parties that have a different um, view uh, than what the WF wants. They just are splitting um, uh, down the middle. And here we have a direct possibility of intervening uh, of the power of the people seizing power back. And I only have this here. You can see this on the page, das Projekt, the project. I've um, highlighted it here. The entire project is described from the beginning to the end, including the power questions that would emerge. They're all described here. I do have to say I am very fond of a basic democracy. It's not for nothing that we are organized in the respective party. And um, I think it's very important that we, as a swarm, that is what we have in the basis, that the members can take decisions altogether. And the experience is very good with decisions that have been taken by the swarm, because swarm uh, smartness, uh, working together on things has a big effect. And I think there's much more rationale in this uh, than if there are just individuals that uh, rule us, especially if they follow a completely different agenda than what uh, they should according to common sense. And, well, let me say that the swarm can be misled as well if there are very strong political interests in the background that can um, dominate the political debate. The beauty of this is that it's really the basic law 
that is directly turned into a constitution where the sovereignty, our sovereignty, um, all power emanates from the people is um, uh, instrumentalized. And you can't um, be against this without uh, showing that you're against the constitution. You can't really say that this is not um, uh, sensible. First of all, we have no um, ideas about what the Constitution should look like at the end of the day. It's just the implementation of the uh, in initial intention of the fathers of the Constitution. That's the one thing. And it's a topic where, um, because it is about the fundamental structures, uh, you cannot um, moralize a lot, or it's just the fundamental structures uh, of uh, of democracy, or do we want to allow um, structures imposed by elites where we're uh, allowed to nod them off or not? Uh, that's the question, and um, it would be enough to click there and uh, to make sure that the figures go uh, up as soon as they're high enough. I think there will be uh, trouble brewing. Well, there is this problem which has been around for a long time that on federal level there is no uh, plebiscite possible, only on state level. But it's very difficult at times, and uh, uh, you have uh, high hurdles to pass, and probably you would have to rethink that. And uh, also, we see in Switzerland there is the possibility to have federal uh, referenda. And in Corona times, we have seen bad actions taken that uh, some decisions are interlinked, uh, Corona aids uh, connected to general questions. That is something that uh, one should have to look at. And there's more and more things that uh, are going on here, alternative media reporting on this, uh, making sure that the people can be um, objectively informed, informed and not uh, uh, a perverted white book which is published before that. But I think this is secondary questions. Well, it's a, a constitution explanatory assembly uh, and we have already considered how this can be done, but it could be improved by the um, citizens' participation. Those are the key questions, of course, yes. Good. Uh, Ralph, I think... I don't know, do we have any other aspects? Otherwise, I would say we should leave it at that. I think it's a very interesting approach. And Reiner, do you want to add anything? <clears throat> no, I've had my say. Okay, I'm happy that we could uh, illustrate this in a bit more detail. Very good, thank you. Ralph and Heinz, that you were here. Do you have a more, more, more comment? There's one thing I have to say. It sounds very remote, uh, but it's really a change in constitution is uh, politically like changing the laws of nature in uh, natural science or in, in, in engineering. Then everything changes. And you have to realize that and if you want to change things today, protest is no good anymore. If I stand out there, even if I get a half a million people out there, it's a huge effort, and then the politicians don't care uh, at all about it. And then you're there and you think everything um, has 
dissipated and you won't get them back out again because a huge effort and it's relatively easy here because we do this once by a, a vote on the internet and you can't run into problems with the police you don't have to uh, go out to the street and allow to be beaten down um, you do that by the way um, at home and um, so that's another aspect so here you can really change the basics such that reasonable decisions are made again and that the politicians feel obliged to the people again rather than the so-called elites. One more point. Uh, I don't think uh, that taking to the streets doesn't make a difference. I think it does make a big difference, especially in the basic democratic approach that we have seen in the recent past that many small groups uh, meet up people in villages who uh, take their walks and I do think that the big rallies which are difficult to organize and where you don't really know who's organizing them and so on uh, and who is um, they're easy to stop but I think the small things uh, growing up everywhere uh, standing up and getting to the streets everywhere I think that is something that uh, is absolutely helpful and I do think uh, that uh, much of the worse uh, didn't happen because people actually did take to the roads including people who were vaccinated saying no I don't agree to what's going on and took their walks and that is a kind of empowerment of the individual who can decide to do this, but at the same time take a walk uh, wherever they may are. So that's the uh, the crucial thing about it. Okay, I'm Ralph, so. Ralph, thank you, Heinz, thank you. Uh, lots of food for thought. And we will turn to Wolfgang, Wolfgang Wodak, who got online. Nice to see you. Hello, I was very interested in listening uh, to see this different approach, and I share that. And you could just run away to somewhere, but um, you can't run away from this world. Um, so if it's global, it's a problem to run away. And I think it's good to fight back. It's good to fight back smart. And this is exactly the point, I think, that we're looking here. We have to talk about what is fighting back smart. And um, you said it's good to have little upheavals everywhere, people getting critical everywhere. That is a very, very good thing. Whether that's only possible by the internet or whether it has to be experienceable by the people, not on the monitor by doing a click, but uh, that they talk about it, that they get their feedback, that they get their questions. There's so many questions involved in this, but it's a very good and interesting tool. But that is not what I joined the call for. Um, I had a couple of topics that I prepared, and I would like to briefly share that on my screen. <coughs> which. Can you see my screen? Yes, we can. Yeah. 
Okay, so this is the point. I don't know how much time I have. Uh, maybe I'll have to summarize a little bit. It all bases on the weekly reports of uh, RKRI. I wanted to start with what they are telling us. And then the question, um, less people dying of COVID-19 than before we had these uh, measures and the medicaments and the drugs. A very German question, of course. And is there a pandemic of the unvaccinated and how to measure it? That's, I think, a very, very important question. And the second thing, uh, I cannot smell, is that COVID? That's what people have been asking me. And I had this, I couldn't, re I couldn't smell. And uh, I, uh, a brief remark on the prior on discussion. I've got data from Robert Koch Institute, uh, two of them in the time showing, showing the cases. The cases are positive, PCR tests reported, whatever they are sick or not. Uh, and that is separated by uh, age and week of the report um, going to right now. And we see here that in medium age, there were some cases. So that's where the tests are. That's where the most cases are. People had to go to hospital and so on. Uh, and uh, they are here. And uh, the old people who were intensively tested in the care homes, many there. And then there was a little lax. People who wanted to travel needed to test. There were some positive ones. And in summer, there was hardly anything, uh, just a very few. And here it started with the vaccination. So in summer, we couldn't see anything. But then towards the end of the year, we see the picture changing drastically. It's very dark. And this is even with the children. Uh, that's because the school started testing. And uh, then the children uh, were found positive. Not so they didn't take so much care of the elderly. And here uh, they got on to everybody. This is uh, where we see the booster coming in. That's where things start getting dark. And that is the development of the so-called vaccinations. People who got the jabs on age group, the ages, the old, middle, and uh, the young people. And this is the booster, the dashed line. <clears throat> so what else do they have? They look at how many people go to see the doctor. And in these respiratory diseases, that's what they have here. Um, that's the rate. It's a standardized uh, sentinel practices. And we see the different years. And we see last year, 2021 and 2022, <coughs> there's uh, the change of the year in the middle. There's not much going on, really. In the other seasons, it was higher. 1718 was higher. We all know that. It hasn't changed much. So there's no more respiratory diseases than before. And even the severe cases, people have to be hospitalized. It's rather flat. Nothing is going on. There was something very bad here uh, where people had this, had to go to hospital. And we don't see this here by the data of the Robert Koch Institute. Here we see the vaccination of the population. We see that the dark line is the fully vaccinated and uh, 
here we see the respiratory emergency cases. Again, the top line, nothing has changed. It's just like in the years before. And if I've shown this before, if we look at the cardiovascular diseases, we see in 21, this is the year 21, we see a steep rise uh, parallel to the degree of vaccination. People who got the shot, got the jab, had to go to the doctor to see, had to see the doctor because of cardiovascular diseases. And the same picture holds true for neurological diseases. These are acute cases, acute cases, uh, things that happen if uh, something has changed drastically. Um, there seemed to be some change here simply by the vaccination. I have looked at this graph again for this year. That's interesting. This was 21. Here, we don't have the year 22. It's not in the charts. Maybe you will have it at the end of the year, but you can't see anything here of that year. And I do fear the figures are going to be much worse. Um, we'll see when these are presented. However, it's surprising that we don't see any data so far. That's the weekly report. This is the COVID-19 deaths, whatever that may be, people who died with a positive test. And here we see these are the elderly uh, from the care homes. They're done here. Uh, these are the medium aged and these are the young people. And the medium aged people, uh, 60 to 97, 79, uh, fewer COVID cases, but still some there. So is it fewer that die? And then we got this alarm from England saying that following the jabs, many, many people more died than before, that the total mortality has changed. And here, by the unvaccinated, which is the blue line, they looked at that. There's not so much. There's not much happening. It's rather a dropping tendency. And these are the people who died of the first jab already, which spikes up. And if we look at the second dose, that's the orange line going up again. So that is food, uh, food for thought. Stephen Kirsch gave us this picture. These are the American figures <clears throat> where he uh, pointed out these all-cause mortality where he saw these spikes as well over the past two years since the jabs are around. That is quite striking. And uh, this is from him as well, um, where we see the Seychelles and Israel, nothing in the Seychelles, and uh, quite clear peaks in Israel or a high level in Israel, rather. And we see how it grew here with the rollout of the vaccinations. Uh, 
Now, and this is something he showed us as well, same thing, really. In Germany, US and Cyprus, we saw that excess mortality, which was uh, significant, all cause mortality, which needs an explanation, really. And he showed us as well that the English, who have very good statistics, did find out that the people who got the jab have a very significant change, uh, a high, very high rate of mortality, and he explained all of that to us. I don't want to repeat it all. And with this chart, he told us that especially for the younger people, young men mostly, myocarditis cases soared all of a sudden. Uh, myocarditis is a very dangerous uh, disease which may lead to death. Now, there's something very interesting from the Robert Koch Institute here. When it started with the jabs here, that was uh, New Year 2021, 2020-21. Uh, uh, that's the test. The blue lines are the tests. And the red dotted line, that is the number of positive test cases in percent. We see the percentages here, so maximum 30% at the peak. No more positive tests than they had got. 13% of all the tests. And now, in autumn, and, and now, uh, autumn 21, with the start of the jabs, when the boosters were given, it surged all of a sudden, it was more tests, we saw that here, and at the same time, the number of positive tests increased up to 55%. That is something that is very unusual and is as yet unseen, um, so that can only be explained by the test. So that will mean that uh, the people are tested uh, positive due to the spikes they have in the bloodstream. Quite right. There is enough people who explain this as a correlation, and we've seen that in some of the institutions where the people were uh, jabbed, and, and they all got positive, although they didn't have any um, any positive tests before. That would explain it, yes. and. Again, we have this uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated. Spiegel reported it here. The unvaccinated drive the pandemic. Uh, what is all this about, really? I looked into that, and the Robert Koch Institute says that is where that figure is driven from. So we have the cases. I've seen the cases. We've shown the cases. Um, cases that increase, um, that were all the first charts with everything blood red. That was the cases, many, many cases. And what is the case then? And here, the Robert Koch Institute says that a breakthrough, a vaccination breakthrough is if something happens that someone gets COVID-19, although they got all jabs. And that is the case if a fully vaccinated person has a PCR te tested and confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infection with symptomatics 
and that is after the minimum basic immunization, minimum two weeks after that, after the vaccination. That's the official definition. And that is the filter uh, who is a COVID case and who isn't. And if we look at the pandemic of the unvaccinated, so it must be many, many people who are, cannot be counted as vaccinated. And they, all the people who just got the jab in the first four weeks after the jab are not counted as vaccinated. And after the first jab, they are not vaccinated at all. So basic vaccination is only after two jabs. So if you've got complications after that, and you've got a test positive, then you are not vaccinated and you are a case. Even if you got myocarditis, you are a case of unvaccinated. Even if they got a brain vein thrombosis, unvaccinated, because they are not counted as basic immunized. So that is a... And it is only a breakthrough. It is really vaccinated people with all three boosters, and it is two weeks over. But only if they only have the typical COVID symptoms. So, as a, a boosted person, three jabs, I'm not a COVID case, so I'm not a breakthrough if I get the typical uh, adverse effects, uh, hepatitis, thrombosis, immune uh, weakness, if I get uh, monkeypox, whatever, I don't have the typical symptoms. I have uh, the, the adverse effects, um, I'm sick, I may even die, but I'm not a, a vaccination breakthrough because I don't have the typical symptoms of SARS-CoV-2. I have to have that as well. So what's the typical symptom then? So this is again the same thing. What uh, is the definition of basic immunization? You really have to read this carefully. And then it is quite clear what they do here. How many doses of what you have to have, how many days and what of the other, what of which uh, jab and so on. It's all said here, how long it has to be a lot ago, uh, what time has to be be between the, sh sh the jabs and so on. And not all symptoms account, only the typical symptoms count. And this blinds out, um, this eludes uh, the first of the first jab, jab in the first 14 days. In UK, they even wait three, wait three weeks, so it's longer still. Only then it will be breakthroughs, only with they have typical um, cases. If not, they are atypical COVID cases with non-vaccinated people. Facilal patrizia, acute myocarditis, sudden heart death, stroke, thrombosis are non-typical Syndromes. So even lethal adverse effects um, that are not um, with a pos positive test uh, after the first jab, they are counted as unregistered. So everybody dubbed the uh, jab twice uh, are um, jabbed if they have the typical symptoms. So what are these to count as a breakthrough? So they got it after all the vaccinations. 
So, myoconitis doesn't help. It's got uh, cough, fiber, cold, uh, olfactory problems, uh, throat ache, uh, short breathlessness, very unspecific that uh, occur with many different diseases. So, in nearly uh, uh, cold, you can have that. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, COVID-19. It is not COVID-19 specific at all. It is flu specific, if at all. Uh, this is general infections that start like that. Many of them do. And these are the symptoms that you've got to have. The funny thing is, in the first two weeks, if we look at that FDA statistics, when people died after the jab, you do see, these are the days after the jab where people die. You see that in the first days, most people die in the first days. And all of these are unvaccinated, although after the jab, and maybe because of the jab, they died. And that is scandalous. This is again the different topic on the uh, problem of the health uh, of the smell and taste but maybe uh, to this point are there questions no keep going okay the symptoms the typical symptoms for COVID-19 and uh, loss of taste and smell is typical and uh, we looked at that what um, where was that before there is experts for that and they said there is clinics for this and of course they talked about this long before we talked about corona and i remember i remind you coronaviruses have been along around for a long time they were just part of normal respiratory diseases diseases and if we look at what does um create anosme that means if i can't smell or taste well, what, what's caused by that, uh, that is uh, due to a cold. Is Cold is one of the most frequent causes, and uh, azomia, that is what a uh, 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 doctor told me, that's what they learned, and that is what you can get with and without COVID-19. And if you look at November 2016, um, this is a page where I can give you the source. It's a general health page, 2016. Uh, triggers, most frequent triggers are a cold, allergies, um, uh, uh, mucus uh, infections, and uh, swollen mucus, and so on. Uh, so nobody talks about corona, although 10 to 14% of those spurry diseases um, were caused by that uh, from corona at these times already. And this is from a source made for patients, done by an expert, MSD manual for patients. Another frequent cause is an infection of the upper respiratory organs, including especially influenza. Uh, a flu can be the reason for up to a quarter of patients for uh, hyposemia. Um, what did the Robert Koch Institute say? 19%. 
well, more or less, okay. Wolfgang, may I ask very briefly, um, the people, I know a few people who had this, or shall we say they had some sort of uh, respiratory disease and happened to be tested positive or whatever. But the question is, some have described that this is really very difficult, uh, different from um, having a blocked nose from a cold. They said that it's, um, um, that they felt it to be uh, very unusual. Maybe it's a perceptual bias um, based on uh, what they heard left, right and center, um, that it was this loss of um, taste. But they described it different, uh, differently. How long can this persist after a flu? Well, in the flu, two, three weeks, perhaps. <laughs> it can take that long. If you've got uh, bacterial infection, a sinusitis as well, you have a, uh, a damage on the nasal mucus tissue um, that can play a role. So there is lots of individual cases on how people experience this. If they were in panic, for example, and do things that may lead to additional negative effects. Uh, this is the AWMF that is a work group for health issues. And the experts here um, came up with a, the ENT specialists uh, came up with this guideline um, and it was published 2016 which has just expired. I'm interested to see what the new guideline is going to tell us. By the way, they said that um, wearing masks is sensible, although they said the opposite uh, early on. So that seems to be a special case, which quite irritates me, um, what they did in the past two years. However, the most frequent causes, they said in 2016, synonasal um, diseases, uh, inflammation of the nose or the sinusitis, respiratory disease, and in collectors of HNO, of ENT clinics, we see that the post-viral um, sm smelling disorders um, have that. There are some that do a dry uh, infections, others make your nose drip, and corona means that it is rather dry <clears throat> as um, in its course. Uh, and there was a survey done here, which they caused, which they looked at. This is uh, from Germany. It was also done in um, Austria and Switzerland. And on average, they had 46 patients so the clinics, on average, that was with this olfactory dysfunction, um, mostly caused by inflammatory diseases of the nose, paranasal, paranasal sinuses, respiratory dysfunctions, or post-viral conditions. Again, similar figures. This is what we have to look at, that these uh, figures have been taken from selective uh, patients. Who would go to see the doctor or to a clinic if you have a flu? Uh, only very few, so probably this is something that you can't use for general purposes. So much maybe on these two topics, and um, do you have any questions on this? Not at this point, no. 
Okay, well then the question is, uh, you have the question about the prions. I would like to um, underscore, um, it's really sensational how they cheat here by uh, defining uh, of who is vaccinated, who is not, and that everybody um, goes along, everybody knows, the health insurances know, the clinics know, when they report their uh, patients as vaccinated or their, their uh, staff as vaccinated or unvaccinated, then they use these definitions. And the cases reported are reported on the basis of these definitions. And they're selected, um, uh, they're weeded out if they don't have the typical symptoms or if the jab is only a week ago or whatever, if they have the uh, complications. So these figures um, that were offered, these figures uh, that I showed by RKI, they're useless. That's really a hoax. And the many, many people who die now, who have problems now, who never had anything to do with the corona uh, uh, infection, they get uh, herpes zoster, um, pimples, uh, red spots, um, uh, broken uh, uh, guts, hepatitis, um, uh, tumors, um, severe pneumonia. They get it because of this jab and because the jab has a positive influence on the uh, PCR test. It makes it positive. It's not considered to be, if they're not vaccinated, it doesn't, uh, it, it's not considered COVID-19. It's, it's not even considered, say, a vaccination breakthrough. It's just um, calculated as an, um, a case. Sorry, it's, it's counted as COVID-19, of course, if they have a positive test. It's just not uh, considered a um, vaccination breakthrough. Now I'm getting confused because it is really uh, so complicated. This definition is so intricate. Um, I'll make these um, slides and definitions available on my homepage so we can take a look at that again. I wanted to go uh, to go into the um, discussion about the prions. I was the uh, reporter of to the uh, German parliament uh, when uh, people were scared of the uh, BSE, um, where um, cattle, above all calves, um, contracted BSE uh, via uh, their food. These uh, cases that we have now um, of uh, uh, Jakob disease um, that is recurring now in France, and that has been linked to the uh, to the jab, and the Wuhan virus. Uh, it is known as uh, Montagnier has described that um, it can uh, that it has similarities to uh, um, BSE or cross uh, cross Jakob, and. Um, Um, it had these sequences and it can, can make similar um, symptoms. And the same goes for the jabs that we got. They also had these prions. Uh, I looked at the publications on the mRNA technology again, and even Sahin 
the head of uh, BioNTech, in 2014, he published an extensive review and um, it becomes clear uh, again there how difficult it is to stop um, uh, the mRNA to do something you don't want if you uh, tweak this uh, part and that. So uh, you want to get it, uh, you want it to get into the cell, and the cell has a lot of um, correct uh, correction mechanisms uh, to stop this. And if something happens, then what can happen is that the proteins that are formed uh, fold incorrectly, and they simply uh, deposit somewhere. Those are the so-called prions, and those are uh, incorrectly folded proteins that deposit in uh, different places. And if it happens in the brain, um, then that damages the brain. And if it happens in uh, large quantities of billions of cells, um, get this mRNA because it spreads across the body, then of course an acute um, symptoms are possible that uh, it's plausible that uh, this would be the side effect of such a uh, jab. And I think um, research is urgently needed here. And I cooperate with Mr. Aguzzi from uh, Switzerland. Um, where is he now? He used to work, do a lot of work in this context in the past. I think we really have to go there and look very closely. What about the people who got the jab? And what uh, can we see in pathology here? And that's why uh, it's so important that Mr. Burkhardt gets enough money here. It's very important. And I can only hope that uh, Mr. Burkhardt's work is reinforced and that he looks at whether there are prions in uh, the tissue of people who died after the jab. And Mr. Burkhardt does that alongside his uh, normal research. He does it with, on his private time. Of course, it's really uh, extremely important. There should be public research um, projects, um, but we know how corrupt um, the health system is. So we can't expect them to do that. We have to make sure that people learn that you can't get these jabs. You are being killed there. They're experimenting around. They don't know themselves what happens. And they sell it like as if um, uh, it was safe and they make billions out of it. You're the uh, guinea pigs. So please be smart enough not to do this. And your children. It really hurts my soul to see this. And what people and parents are told there it's very dangerous. You may be lucky, but maybe only with the first jab. And the more often you do this to yourselves or your family, the more dangerous it becomes. And that is the conclusion. Everything speaks in favor of this jab, killing people and making them ill. This has to stop now. And everybody who administers this jab, every physician administering this jab, must know these things. They must take a look at these things and discuss them. The um, working group of medical um, specialist associations is um, has a special responsibility of uh, responsibility here. And where are they? I have spoken to them about corruption at the time. I think it was no good.
Wow, madness. Uh, about this Kreuzfeld Jakob's disease, is there any findings uh, in the findings? Um, and people suffer strongly, it's pure speculation, but can we assume that this happens immediately or after a year or two with the late effect? Well, we believe that this mRNA is active for uh, 50, 60 days. It's not mRNA, it's artificial RNA. It's not mRNA, it's artificial RNA that is completely different from the natural mRNA. And it is taken to the cell and it is active there for at least 50 days, maybe sometimes a bit longer, and then with others um, for a shorter period. That's what Ms. Uh, Mr. Malone uh, says, he's a specialist, and he says it explicitly and again and again and ever louder. So we have to expect that in this uh, period where billions of cells, brain cells included, because these nanoparticles go to the brain as well, into the liver, the, or the heart, the lung, that everywhere these modifications happen. When the mRNA uh, gets into the cell, it immediately starts to uh, produce these proteins within minutes it starts and they become ever more and if we are um, given self-replicating mrna as it is done in some clinical studies already they do it they, that they uh, that it self-replicates then it lasts longer and is even more uh, is even quicker so crossfire jacob is a disease uh, people who were exposed to that that was the mad cow disease in uh, New Guinea, uh, where uh, people uh, ate the, the brain of their um, ancestors. They died after months or years. What Montagnier and his uh, colleagues described was within weeks of the jab. That started very quickly, and that matches this rapid effect of the mRNA, this artificial mRNA that uh, wreaks havoc in the cells. And that is why the prognosis um, and the uh, neurological findings that people don't feel fit, that they have all sorts of neurological failures, that can be well um, explained by nerve cells being destroyed everywhere where this RNA penetrated into the cell and this can't be controlled at all where it happens. And that's is on top of all the other um, side effects as we go into the immune system if the T cells are um, um, hampered there so that you get um, uh, shingles and, and uh, cancer, etc. So there's a wide range of adverse effects that you can have here. And now uh, the people uh, who are responsible for that are now trying to convince us that these side effects are new diseases now and they actually scare us with them. Um, think of the monkeypox, they uh, make a test now uh, for monkeypox and that'll be similar to the Drosten test that simply is positive. If you have a pimple on your backside, then that's all of a sudden uh, monkeypox, it could be herpes zoster or uh, digitalis. Uh, which is, of course, nothing to do with um, uh, the vaccination, but it can, you can get it easier if the immune system has been tampered with an HIV. Uh, you, uh, it could be that, and you need to get 
uh, a jab against that, but you um, because you have uh, immune deficiency, but you get the immune deficiency because of the jab. So they try to scare us again. So uh, those are viruses um, transmitted by vectors, by insects, etc., and they uh, are looking for all sorts of things to explain the adverse effects of the jabs, and they make money with it again and make us um, afraid of other things, and they distract ourselves, uh, distract us from the single problem that we were so stupid that we didn't protect ourselves against these genetic experiments that we're now exposed by the millions and that so many people have been victimized by already. Madness. Well, Wolfgang, thank you for that summary of the most recent findings. I think we have to keep up with this and we'll carry on. But now we have Bobby and Flower Cox waiting from New York. And she's looking forward to talk to us on a legal matter as well. First of all, thank you again. We'll talk again later on. Yet. Can hear us. You're muted. Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, we can hear you. Perfect. I'm uh, sorry, sorry to keep you waiting, Bobby Ann. Um, you're an attorney at law in New York. Your focus is on representing New Yorkers on matters pertaining to overreaching government agencies or department. And as an attorney in New York, and during this year, you have been in a lawsuit against the governor and the New York Department of Health over their illegal isolation and quarantine camp regulation. This regulation, and this is probably going to come as a surprise to most people, men, maybe not to Californians, which is where I am because it's just as bad as New York, but to Floridians, it'll come as a surprise. This regulation allows the government to take someone out of their home, quarantine them just because they assume that they have been exposed to a disease and they don't even have to prove that the person really has a disease. They can even remove just one person from a family unit. Is that really so? Yes, yes, this regulation is unbelievable. Um, first, I wanna thank you for having me on uh, today. And uh, yeah, this, this regulation is, first of all, it's promulgated from, it's through the Department of Health here in New York State. So it's not a law, it didn't come through the legislature. Um, and that's the whole problem because, you know, in the United States, we have what we call separation of powers. And um, our constitution, whether it's the federal constitution or it's our New York state constitution, um, the whole premise is that we have three branches of government and each one of those branches has its own authority, its own power. Uh, you know, we have the judicial branch, which is the courts and the judges. Uh, we have the executive branch, which is where the governor and her Department of Health sit. And then we have the legislative branch. And the legislative branch is who makes law. So those are the politicians that we elect. Here in New York, it happens every two years. You know, we go to the polls every two years. This is actually an election year this year in New York State. Um, and we elect the people that we want to represent us in the New York State Legislature. And what happened in this instance is uh, the governor of New York, who's in the executive branch, 
um, and her Department of Health, which is under her, they made this regulation, which I, I'm going to explain it now to, to your audience and, and everyone. It's, it's just, especially to Americans, it's astonishing. So um, it allows the Commissioner of Health, so the head of New York State Department of Health, it allows her or whoever she appoints to pick and choose which citizens they're going to force to isolate or quarantine. So they can force you to lock down in your home or they can remove you from your home and they can force you into a facility. Um, they get to pick how long you stay there. So either locked down in your house or locked up in a facility, they get to choose a few days, a few weeks, a few months. I mean, there's just no restriction in the regulation. Um, they don't have to prove that you have a communicable disease. So they could just think maybe you were exposed to a communicable disease. There's absolutely no due process to, to prove you're sick or that if you're sick, that you're acting in an inappropriate way. Um, there's no age restriction. So they could do this to you. They could do this to your child, to your grandchild, to your, your, your parent or your elderly grandparent. So there's no age restriction built into this regulation. Um, and the location, you know, they, the government gets to pick where you have to isolate or quarantine. And when you're in quarantine, they get to tell you what you can and cannot do. Right, so that could mean anything. I mean, the, the, the language in this regulation is so broad that that could literally mean anything. Do they tell you what medications you have to take or you can't take? Do they tell you whether or not you can have your cell phone to call people or your, your laptop computer to communicate with the outside world? I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable. It, it's complete tyranny. So um, basically what happened was uh, this regulation has been promulgated through the Department of Health um, with the governor. And um, so I'm representing a, a group of New York State lawmakers. So a group of legislators, members in the New York State Senate and New York State Assembly. Um, and the, that's Senator George Borrello, Assemblyman Chris Taig, Assemblyman Mike Lawler, um, together with a citizens group that is called Uniting New York State. So together I'm representing them and we're suing the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, um, her commissioner of health, Mary Bassett, the Department of Health in New York State and um, the Health Planning Council. So the whole premise of this lawsuit is you do not have the power to issue this regulation. You don't have the power to tell people where they have to go, when they have to go, that they can't leave their house or that they have to be locked up in a facility that you choose. I mean, it's it's completely outside the scope of the authority that lies with the executive branch of government. So um, we saw something very similar happen at the federal level here in the United States. Um, so last year, Biden told his agency, OSHA, to make a regulation that said any company in the United States that had 100 or more employees 
had to require those employees to get the COVID-19 shot or they had to go to work and wear a mask and take a test every week. So it was it was very restrictive. Um, of course, Biden got sued and they sued OSHA as well, the agency. And um, the whole argument was separation of powers. The argument was, hey, Biden, you're in the executive branch of government and so is OSHA because they're an agency under you. You don't have the power to make this regulation because really it's not a regulation really it's a law i mean you're calling it a regulation but it's really a law and only the legislature can make law and at the federal level that's congress so um the case went all the way up to the united states supreme court and in january of this year the supreme court ruled and they said no this is not permitted the executive branch of government can't make laws. Only the legislature can make laws. And this regulation, although they're calling it a regulation, really it's a law. And so the United States Supreme Court struck it down, said it was unconstitutional, it was impermissible. Um, and that's very similar to the argument that I'm making in this lawsuit, um, because it's, again, executive branch overreach it's going they're going into the other lane they're going into the lane of lawmaking which is what the legislature is supposed to do um so the the case was filed at the beginning of april and um basically the so the new york state attorney general is is who represents the governor and the department of health and such so i'm i'm up against the um, attorney general's office so um you know, the first thing they did was they removed the case from New York State Court to federal court. They tried to argue this is a federal case with federal law and, and um, which it's not. You know, that was, in my opinion, that was a stall tactic. They just want to try and, you know, delay the case from moving forward. Um, you know, this is an argument about New York State law, New York State regulation. I mean, they're calling it a regulation. It's not really. Um, and New York state constitutional violations. So it's clearly a state issue. Um, and we did have to do motion practice in federal court and we had to do oral arguments in front of the federal judge. Ultimately, the judge did rule in our favor and he, he granted us um, the permission to go back to state court. So we are back in state court. And um, the, the whole crux of the argument of you know separation of powers and and taking the power from another branch of government um we've seen that a lot going on not just in new york state we've seen it in other states um we've seen it at the federal level um i don't know if anybody's aware um a couple of years ago with, with the whole COVID thing you know the the cdc the centers for disease control here in the united states which is a federal agency um, you know, said they made a rule, they made a regulation, and they said um, landlords, property owners could not evict their tenants if their tenants stopped paying the rent. Um, you know, and I, again, immediately I was like, wait a minute, you don't have the authority to say that. You don't have the authority to make that rule. You are not Congress, right? You are an agency and, and you, you're supposed to be dealing with disease, not, you know, private property ownership. 
So um, ultimately, that also went up to the United States Supreme Court, and that also was was struck down and deemed unconstitutional because, again, agencies cannot make laws, only Congress or a legislature can make laws in this country. Um, so we're seeing this at, at many levels, this, this executive branch overreach. Um, and the importance of, of winning this case really can't be understated because the, the, or can't be overstated because the whole premise of being able for the state government to be able to take citizens out of their homes or, or force you to lock yourself in your home for however long they want with no due process procedures in place is, first of all, it's unconstitutional according to our constitution, but also if, it, if this regulation is allowed to stand and we don't strike it down, the court doesn't strike it down, it's going to send a signal to all the other agencies that, hey, you can make a regulation or a rule that says anything you want it to say. It doesn't matter if it conflicts with the Constitution. It doesn't matter if it conflicts with existing laws that we already have in place. Just do whatever you want, no problem. You can get away with it, right? So it's going to signal to these other agencies that they can do whatever they want. Um, this regulation, it's called isolation and quarantine procedures. And um, if, if this regulation is allowed to remain, um, it conflicts with not just the constitution because it violates separation of powers and there's no due process protection built into this regulation, but it also violates existing New York state law. So we have in New York a, a, a law that has been on the books for decades and it's uh, public health law section 2120. It says, if there's somebody that has a communicable disease and they are a threat to the society, there are steps that you can take to remove that person and quarantine them. So that section of the public health law already tells us what we need to do in the event that somebody has a communicable disease and they're they're not acting in, in a proper manner, right? They're they're spreading their disease to other people inappropriately. So you know, lots of due process protections are built into that law. First and foremost, the law says that you need to prove that the person actually has the disease that you think they have. So that's first and foremost, right? Um, then there has to be an investigation. They have to collect evidence, and this is all happening at the local level, right? This is the local health department doing this. They have to collect evidence. They have to build, uh, you know, a case, so to speak, against you. Um, there has to be a hearing in front of a magistrate, and if the magistrate decides that, yes, not only do you have this communicable disease, but you're not conducting yourself in a proper manner to protect other people around you, then yes, that magistrate could issue a, an order of quarantine for you. But there's a lot of due process protection built into that statute so that the person, the citizen who's being accused of being sick and then reckless has some protection. And that's what our constitution says. You can't just make laws without having protections for the people built in there somehow. So this regulation conflicts 
with this law that we already have on the books and we've had for decades. So again, if it's allowed to stand and this regulation is not struck down by the court, you're, you're signaling that agencies can do whatever they want and they can overrule or override existing laws that we already have in place. Now, if that happens, then we have the breakdown of separation of powers, which is the cornerstone of our society, because separation of powers says each of the three branches has its own power and its own authority. But if one branch is now allowed to make rules that negate or overrule the laws that are passed by this other branch of government, now you've put that executive branch above the other ones, right? You've, you've now said the executive branch can do whatever they want. It doesn't matter what, what laws the legislature passes. So it's extremely dangerous. It, it is a recipe for tyranny. And uh, the, the Department of Health, the New York State Department of Health and the New York State governor um, have been doing this since the governor took office. And in fact, it started under our prior governor, um, Andrew Cuomo, who in March of 2020, when the coronavirus pandemic came to New York, he was given special powers, emergency powers by the New York State Legislature. So he was given powers to temporarily, they called it issue directives. Really, it was make laws. People were calling them mandates. Um, and he passed that power onto the head of the Department of Health. He issued an executive order that specifically shared that power with the Department of Health. And, you know, when he, a year later in March of 2021, the New York State Legislature took that power back from him. So they took it away from him. He no longer had that power. It was temporary, it was emergency. They took it back. So it follows that if the power was removed from him as governor, then the power that he passed on to his agency head would also be extinguished, right? Furthermore, in, in June of 2021, Governor Cuomo declared that the coronavirus, um, they, he had declared a state of emergency in New York State back in March of 2020. But in June of 2021, he declared that that state of emergency was now over. And he issued an executive order that revoked all the prior executive orders having to do with the pandemic. So clearly the Department of Health lost that power that he had given them by executive order the year before, very clearly. Then he steps down as governor in August of 2021 Governor Hochul becomes the, the new governor of New York in August, and she continues, she and her Department of Health continue to issue this very same exact word-for-word -word regulation that Cuomo had issued under his administration, but he had this special emergency power that was given to him by the legislature. Hochul doesn't have that. She never had that. She doesn't have it now, and neither does her Department of Health. So technically and legally, it's very clear that they lack the power and the authority to issue this regulation. Um, and it's, it's pretty astounding to, to an American because this is what we're seeing 
you know, we've seen videos and photographs and heard stories about what's going on in, in Australia, what's going on in Shanghai, what's going on in Canada, you know, and, and this regulation that New York State has in place right now is absolutely the groundwork for that. If, if this regulation, if the court doesn't rule in our favor here, this regulation, we're going to see New York is now all of a sudden going to be like these other countries that are doing forced lockdowns of their of their citizens with, with no due process. Um, and the problem is that this isn't just a New York state issue. Yes, it's it's happening right now in New York state and I'm trying to stop it. However, this is going to affect all the other states, because as soon as the other states realize, well, hey, New York state is allowed to forcibly lock down their citizens if they think maybe they were exposed to a communicable disease. Why can't we do that? Let's let's do it, too. Right. So then it's going to just it's going to become a trend that spreads across the country. The other states are going to incorporate the same, you know, forced lockdowns. And uh, then then where do you go? Where, where do you run to? Where do you hide? Right. Because New York has lost a tremendous number of citizens in the past two years because people were really tired of the tyranny that's been going on here in New York state. So they they picked up and they left and they went to other states, you know, freer, more free states. Um, but pretty soon this is going to spread across the country. I mean, everything usually does. Right. All eyes typically are on New York and California. Right. So. Whatever happens here is going to spread. There's going to be no place to run to and no place to hide. And if the United States all of a sudden is now allowed to start locking up or locking down their citizens, whether in their homes or, or in quarantine camps, you know, what is what signal does that send to the rest of the world? Oh, well, the U.S. is doing it. You know, why can't we do it, too? So. The whole the whole premise is we need to preserve the Constitution here. We need to preserve our separation of powers. We need to keep the, the whole issue of keeping the people safe, which is what the governor claims she's trying to do with this with this regulation. Oh, we need the power because we need to keep people safe. We already have a law that can keep people safe. We don't need you to come in and strip out all of the due process protections from that law and make a regulation that overrides not just the law we already have, but the Constitution. You know, we have to we have to win this battle because it will be monumental if we do. And it will send a signal to the other states that says, don't don't even try this. You know, it, they already tried it in New York and it got struck down. Well, so this is New York is currently a testing ground kind of for this this uh, for just having the the chutzpah basically to just go ahead and do as you please uh, introduce this regulation and then just see if someone challenges it and what's going to happen in court and if nothing happens they might just as well go ahead in in other places i was wondering has this been regulation uh, uh enforced i mean has there do you know of cases where people have actually been taken out of their homes and being uh, quarantined like this or is it just is it basically at the moment on paper and they're just uh, making a, a legal case out of it now or seeing yes. whether it's going to be challenged or not Yes, yeah, so that is a question that the the judge when we had oral arguments before the judge uh, about a week or two ago, 
Um, and that is a question the judge asked the attorney general's office, and they claim that they are not currently pulling people out of their homes and locking them up. Um, but my response to that is, well, if, if you're telling the court that you need this regulation because you need to have complete power over 19 and a half million New Yorkers whenever you need it, because the regulation doesn't say it needs to be an emergency for them to, to do this. Um, they could just do it whenever they want. But my point was, well, if, if you haven't done it in the past two years, supposedly, with COVID, which you're saying is the biggest emergency we've ever seen in our lifetime, then what are you what are you going to use it for? You know, I mean, they can't, they can't, it's it's a double, it's a double-edged sword, right? They can't use it as a sword and as a shield. So, um, and the other thing is I'm not challenging their, their legal ability to build facilities or, or build camps, whatever you wanna call them. I'm challenging their authority to put people in there, right? So uh, they don't have the, the power or the authority to issue that order and say, you need to stay in your house or you need to go with us and into this facility or this camp or you know whatever noun you want to use um so it's it's definitely and they're trying to make it permanent so they've been issuing this as an emergency regulation for the past several months um but they've openly admitted that they are making this a permanent regulation and again since it doesn't have to be a state of emergency for them to use this they can literally use it whenever they want, whether or not there's an emergency, whether or not there's an outbreak of a virus or some other sort of disease, they can just do it whenever they want. So it's it's very clearly a violation of not just constitutional law, but existing New York state law, because there's um, a state law that's called the State Administrative Procedures Act. And that says that when you have emergency regulations, there has to actually be an emergency and you have to justify that there is an emergency, right? You can't just say, hey, we think there's an emergency and then you start issuing all these emergency regulations. No, you have to prove, okay, here's our, here's our evidence. Here's the emergency that we're talking about here. And um, in, as part of my argument in the lawsuit, I say, look, they, had, they showed no proof. They, they don't even have one study that they rely upon that says, forcibly isolating or quarantining people that may or may not have a communicable disease is an effective way to stop the spread of the disease. You know, they have no studies like that. They have no, they have no evidence to rely upon. So um, I, I think it's very clear that they are in violation of numerous statutes of New York state and also case law in New York and also the constitution. I mean, there are, there are many levels to this, uh, to this lawsuit, but I think it's, I think it's pretty clear. Yeah. It's very illegal. It's, um, if you look, if you take a closer look, it's obvious that they're trying to actually abrogate the rule of law and thereby the constitution. I mean, if you get rid of the separation of powers and if you agree to an administrative state to have these powers, then all of a sudden you're complete, you've, you've completely lost touch with the population because they're the ones who elect the legislators, uh, legislators, 
And now these legislators can't do anything. It's only up to the administrative state. That cannot be right. And this issue comes popping up over and over and over again. Uh, when uh, Florida, which is one of the states where people seem to be moving to from New York, there um, ruled in on April 18th that the CDC does not have the power to mandate, because that's another administrative agency, uh, to mandate masks on uh, public uh, transportation, um, uh, airplanes, trains, air airports, etc. I think that kind of set the tone. And if that, and I think uh, Leslie Manukian, who is behind this uh, decision, whose um, Health Freedom Defense Fund is behind this um, decision, when she told us last night that they're um, appealing that decision, she also said, well, they're going to run into a brick wall because the 11th Circuit has already uh, made it very clear in connection with uh, cruise ships that this authority doesn't exist. But another thing that might be important is that she pointed out that they're not moving in their appeal. They're not trying to get a uh, an emergency ruling. Um, they, they're obviously they have given up uh, hope on being able to prove that we still have an emergency. Yeah, I don't know if they've given up on that because they are trying to argue a general like they keep citing in their papers and then also during oral arguments in front of the judge they kept citing uh you know well the coronavirus is a worldwide pandemic it's killed this many patient declared a, a world emergency and then we declared an emergency in january you know they keep doing this very broad vague um yeah argument that that hey coronavirus is killing so many people we need we need this regulation to control people and stop the carnage you know and i'm like okay so that is a complete distraction number one like they're just trying to put you know fear into the court they're trying to scare oh people are going to die yes Absolutely, but follow the laws that we have in place and follow the constitution and do it properly, right? You can't just, in, in the Supreme Court of the United States has held in many different cases, in times of emergency, the constitution is not suspended. And in fact, in times of emergency, the constitution is needed even more because in emergency situations, when people are panicking and there's fear and there's uncertainty, it's a prime time for the government actors to come in and, and take total control over the people. And the Constitution, people have forgotten this, especially in the past two years, the Constitution was written to protect the people and keep the government in check. The Constitution wasn't written to keep the people in check, right? We came from, uh, the founders of this country came from a tyrannical situation already. And they crafted our Constitution so that we wouldn't go back to being in a tyrannical situation again, right? They were under the rule of a king in England, and they felt like they had no voice, they had no say, the king was doing whatever he wanted, they were suffering, and they finally said, we had, we've had enough of this. So, and that's when they started, you know, the war. But this is what we see here, is we see the government trying to become tyrannical, or in many instances is already tyrannical, and it is up to we the people to step up 
and say, oh, no, no, <laughs> sorry, our Constitution is protecting us against this. So we need the courts to, because the politicians aren't listening, right? The, the citizens group that I'm representing in this lawsuit with, with the lead New York state legislators, those, those members of the group have been trying for months to get the politicians to do the right thing, writing letters, sending emails, making phone calls, doing rallies in Albany outside the governor's office, you know, they're not listening. They're not listening. So when the politicians are not listening to the people, then the people have to go to the courts, right? They have to go to that next branch of government and say, okay, we need you to, we need you to step up here because <laughs> they're not listening to us anymore. Um, the other thing I want to point out is, you know, the, the, the agencies are not elected, right? So the head of the Department of Health, and again, this is either at the state level or at the federal level, the head of the Department of Health is sitting at the pleasure of the governor. So the people don't elect whoever's running or, or carrying out the orders in the Department of Health or in any agency, right? We just elect the governor and we elect our representatives in the New York State Senate and the New York State Assembly. So you can't have unelected bureaucrats making law. And which is which is really what they've done here. They're calling it a regulation, but it's a law. If you have unelected, appointed bureaucrats, government employees who serve at the pleasure of one person, the executive, who is the governor, that that opens the door to tyranny and and you know, show me show me a civilization where the government took power from the people and then voluntarily gave it back. You know, they don't voluntarily give it back. The people have to stand no. up and demand it back. Uh, you know, and that's what we're trying to do with this lawsuit. Um, is this discussion, I mean, the one great thing that comes out of this is that in large parts of the population, uh, people are talking about and taking a closer look at the Constitution itself. Uh, is this in New York, is this being discussed in the mainstream media, or is this another topic that they choose to ignore? Yeah, no, they are ignoring it. They are, uh -huh. you know, the governor wants to sweep this under the rug. You know, the, the Department of Health wants to sweep this under the rug. The AG, no one's talking about it. Um, this is, you know, the, the main thing. When I'm not working on the case itself, I am trying to get the word out because yeah. the mainstream media won't pick this up. They don't want people yeah. to know what's going on. They don't want to they don't want to uncover this this horrific tyranny that's going on and I think we all know, you know, why. But um of course. so yeah. So it's up to alternative media sources. You know, I'm, I'm you know, doing podcast interviews and um, mm -hmm. you know, local radio show interviews. Um any any sort of media, you know, I wrote an article that was published in the American Thinker, you know, any sort of um, alternative to the mainstream media is is how we're trying to get the word out because people don't know about this regulation. New Yorkers don't know about this regulation. 
And when you bring it up, they're like, no, that can't be right. You must have that wrong. And I'm like, no, because this is what I do every day, all day. I'm fighting to get rid of this regulation. It's there. It's on the books. It's real. Um, but people don't know about it because it's being swept under the rug. And it's, yeah. it's very dangerous. You know, we've seen in the, especially in the past two years, we've seen how, you know, we call it, uh, you know, cancel culture, how cancel culture works and, and censorship is horrific censorship. If, if people don't have the correct information, then they don't, they can't be empowered to stand up for themselves. And I truly believe when people see other people standing up for something, then they say, oh, okay, you know what? They feel empowered. And they're like, I'm going to do that too. I'm going to help out too. And the, the, the citizens group um, uniting New York state, that's part of this lawsuit, they created a webpage specifically about the lawsuit so that people could, you know, you can go there and you can read the regulation. There's a link to the regulation. You can read it for yourself. Um, there's a, there's some videos on there, a press conference that I did with the legislators when we first launched this lawsuit um, a couple months back. Um, there are flyers. People can post flyers around on their social media. Um, you know, there are steps, there are suggested steps people can take to help us spread the word. Um, th there's a donate link there because I'm doing this case pro bono, so I'm, I'm not getting paid for the work. And so there's a donate button there on the, the webpage. So there's a lot of information on this webpage. Um, people can even sign up for weekly updates. Um, if you sign up there, you just put your name and your email and every week they send out a blast um, to everybody to let them know what the status is in the lawsuit and, and other things going on. Um, so, you know, these are all ways that we can, together, we can all try to make this a success. Um, and spreading the word is, is key, which is why I'm, I'm so grateful that you're having me on today because uh, people, people need to know about this. It's going to spread. And so, you know, if somebody living in California or somebody living in Kansas or wherever says, oh gosh, those crazy New Yorkers, ugh, too bad. Mm -hmm. You know, no, <laughs> if this regulation stands, they're going to start it in other states too. So I really hope that people understand the gravity of this and, and start to try and get involved. Yeah, it's a global phenomenon it's and it's going to spread like if you can't stop it, it's going to spread to other areas of America. And then obviously it's also going to hit the rest of the world at some point. I was wondering, did you have a time frame in view, like when you would expect some sort of decision or like some further steps in the in the process? Yes, so um, the judge does not have a strict time frame uh, within which he needs to issue his decision. Um, so I don't know exactly when it's going to be issued, um, but we did oral arguments on May 27th. So um, I'm hoping that we get a ruling in the next couple of weeks here, um, but it's it's that's we are right now just at the first level of the court so i filed in new york state supreme court which is a misnomer because our supreme court in new york state is actually our trial court level it's our lowest level um so i'm assuming that if the judge does rule in our favor that 
the attorney general is going to appeal that case, um, that decision. And so we'd probably then go to the appellate division, um, which is a panel of judges. And then if we went again there, I'm sure the attorney general will appeal again, which would then be the highest court in New York state, which is called the court of appeals, um, which is also a panel of judges. So um, I, I don't know an exact time frame, but I think that this case is going to be going on um, for several months yeah. because I'm, I mean, I would love it if we win and the attorney general says, okay, well, you know, we can't win this fight that they don't appeal, but I, I don't see that happening. I think um, I think we've seen from other cases, like like you mentioned in you know Florida with the the case, um, the federal case where the judge ruled against the uh, the CDC and the and the tra the transportation mask mandate. Um, you know they're appealing that. You know so I think they're not going to back down. I think there are going to be appeals involved if if we win. I do think you're going to win, Bobby Ann, because they just don't have the authority. It's so obvious. And it's really, really important to get the information out to the people, not just in the United States, but also uh, in all over the world. Here's the thing. Of course, this is a global phenomenon. But as far as the United States is concerned, all eyes in the Western world, at least all eyes are on the American judiciary because none of the others functions anymore. The European judiciary has been burned to the ground. Uh, there's one case, we just discussed this shortly before you came on, uh, which uh, some people think this is this could be could be working. It's uh, two uh, high ranking, pretty high ranking uh, members of the military in Germany and they're fighting the mass mandates. Uh, and their, their case is before the highest German administrative law court. We'll see what happens. The That's they're, they're fighting wait the, the a vaccination. Minute, please. Wait a minute, please. Wait a minute, please. Uh, this case is before this highest court uh, in Germany, the administrative law court. And there is some uh, cause for optimism because they're hearing witnesses, which is uh, not uh, the norm, you know, many German courts believe that it's up to their discretion, discretion if they look, if they want to look at the evidence. So all eyes are on the United States as far as I'm concerned. I know other people have different views, but I think this is the case. And that's why I think it is not just important to go the distance. I think you're going to win ultimately, even if they appeal it. Uh, but it's important because this is a two-pronged uh, two approach. It is just as important to get the people to understand what is going on. It's the legal efforts, but it's also getting out the truth so that people will be alarmed and understand that they have to fight back. Definitely. I, I think that's a great point, um, which no one's pointed out yet. But yeah, I think that this is it's so important on both levels, the legal level and then on the social level so that people can really see, oh my gosh, is our government trying to do this to us, right? People don't know. I, and because the mainstream media is not picking it up, it's that much harder to get the word out and, and help people understand. Um, there's a lot of, I think, miscommunication about this. There, We had here in New York State there was a New York State Assemblyman, Nick Perry, who uh, he now uh, Biden appointed him as an ambassador. So he's no longer a New York State Assemblyman. But for seven years, he proposed a law that was very similar to this regulation. So he started back in 2015 
because of Ebola, you know, he thought there was, you know, oh, we need to lock people up. So he proposed this regular, uh, this proposed law for seven years, starting in 2015, all the way through 2021. It was the same sum and substance as this regulation that, that is now in place. And he had, so he was one person proposing it. He had not one other New York state legislator get behind him, not one. And when you combine the number of New York state senators with New York state assemblymen, you have over 200 members in the New York state legislature. So one person out of over 200 was, was for this proposed law. It never saw the light of day. It never even got out of the committee where he first introduced it, which was the health committee and the assembly. And nobody backed it. The Senate never created a similar sister bill, which has to happen for something to become a law. Um, and he ultimately, in, in December of 2021, he ultimately withdrew that, right, that uh, proposed bill, that proposed law, um, and we think it's because he was getting a tremendous amount of backlash from the community once people realized what this was, what he was trying to propose as a law. Um, plus, he was being, you know, he was up for appointment as an ambassador. So I think he wanted to scrub his <laughs> scrub his his file clean so that nobody would look in his file and see this horrific proposed legislation that he had in there. Um, but yeah, that's very rare when a New York State legislator wants to withdraw, you know, they want to take a bill that they've proposed out of the running, they typically will just strike the enabling clause. But he didn't do that. He withdrew the proposed legislation. So it was, it was, to say that it was not popular is an understatement. And now here we have the governor and the Department of Health making a regulation that's basically the same language. I mean, it's not word for word the same, but it's very similar to this bill that failed miserably for seven years in the New York state legislature. So it's very clear that the legislature does not want to authorize the agency to make this reg. And, and for an agency to make a regulation, a legal regulation, like one that is permissible, um, they have to have authority from the legislature. So the legislature would have to issue would have to make a law and then the the agency can say okay we're going to help you imp, uh, implement that law by making some rules and regulations but clearly the new york state legislature does not want to forcibly quarantine uh new yorkers without due process if they may or may not have a disease i mean it's just very clear so um yeah so th this is what you know i'm hoping i'm hoping the courts see the clarity of what I'm trying to explain here and um, and rule in our favor and, and ultimately at the highest level, because this is, you're right, this can't, this can't stand. It will, it will, it will crisscross the globe. I mean, the good thing about obvious. your case is that it's, it's more like a formal you know, um, arguments so that the, the judge doesn't have to go into the depth of like how illegal or like how, how much of a, whatever, um, scheme this whole corona thing is so they don't have to look at that into in detail so i think that's a good that's that's a, a you know in your favor yeah absolutely the, the courts you're exactly right the courts have shown um particularly in the united states that they don't want to get into the science they they don't want to you know the general mainstream 
um, conversation since March of 2020, or even before March of 2020, has been that this is, you know, a horrible thing. It's a pandemic. It's deadly. It's going to kill everyone. It's the plague. You know, for a court to go against the grain on that is very difficult. And so arguing the science is very difficult in a court of law because you're asking the judge to, to make a ruling on the science. But that's not our case at all. We're not asking the judge, and I say that very clearly in my papers, we're not asking the court to decide whether or not forced quarantine of New Yorkers is an effective way to stop the spread of a disease. We're, that is not a question we're asking the court to decide. We're asking the court to decide, did the Department of Health have the power to make this regulation? Yes or no? So we're keeping it very succinct and very focused on the law and, and not the all the other things that could be distractions to the court. Bobby Ann, thank you very much. This was really, really important. Um, and thank you for waiting so long. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I apologize again. But, um, but I think this is so important that um, not just the Americans, not just the American people, but the rest of the world must know it. And again, I think this is, this is a litmus test here in the United States. Everywhere else, the judiciary isn't functioning anymore, except for India, but that's not part of the Western world, really. Well, thank you very much, Bobby Ann, um, and we'll be in touch. I will uh, try and get Corbin to give me your contact data so that we can talk, um, because I have some other ideas. Um, yeah, that would be, that'd be wonderful. I thank you so much for having me on today. Um, and if anybody wants to follow along with the lawsuit, you know, you can go to unitingnys.com. Um, they have a, a link there um, for the lawsuit and you can you can follow along. There's a timeline on there um, and you can also, uh, if you want, you can sign up for the weekly emails. So unitingnys.com is, is the lawsuit that uh, the lawsuit has a web page there. Thanks so okay. much. Thanks. Thank you. Good Thanks for having me. Have a great weekend, Bobby Ann. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Michael Shostodovsky, you're back. Uh, I'm really glad that you too uh, are patient because we kept you waiting as well. Shall we just go ahead and start where you uh, left off last time? Last time? Well, certainly, I, I wanted to bring forth something which might be somewhat controversial. This is not a public health crisis. It is a crisis which has created a public health crisis, but there's a nuance. And uh, we have medical doctors which are focusing on a public health crisis quite legitimately without understanding that at the outset in March of 2020, the lockdown was conducive to economic and social chaos and impoverishment in all regions of the world simultaneously. Now, I wanted to focus on that because, in fact, none of my colleagues, I'm an economist with a training in quantitative methods and so on and so forth, I can look at statistics. 
But anybody in first grade economics 101, if I'd asked the question, what happens when you confine the labor force of 190 countries in their homes, quarantined or whatever, and you order the closing down of productive uh, commercial trading activities worldwide. Of course, it, it happened in stages. I'm, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm simplifying, but if I asked my students, what happens if you confine the labor force? Well, economic crisis, it's obvious, okay? And uh, yeah. what, I'm, what I'd like to address as well is the fact that economic warfare has characterized conflicts between nation states, war between nation states from the early, from early humanity, but particularly, let's say, from the antiquity. In other words, uh, you invade or you conquer or you take control and in all cases, you, the, these acts by one nation state against another nation state are based on dominant economic interests. Whether we take the Crusades, uh, you know, whether we, uh, you know, whether we look at uh, the British East India Company and so on and so forth, it's ultimately the economic interests which are behind these wars, which establish the nature of warfare and of course you come up with some kind of phony ideological concept that we're going after that we're going after the the you know the muslim uh, the muslims or we're going after the whatever i mean uh, you put a bad guy label on this but what i'm saying is that we have reached a point in our history uh where uh this action has been launched under a consensus, a narrative, a fake narrative, a fake science, uh, and it has been imposed and accepted by more than 190 countries. And my understanding- well, by their leaders, by their leaders, by their leaders, not by the- By people. their leaders. Now, by their leaders, that means they've been co-opted. This it's obvious. Yes. Either they've yes. been co-opted, co threatened, or whatever. But yes. the, the, the issue there, and and the issue there is that this process has, in a sense, it's a war against humanity. It's not a war against a nation state, but it is also a war of a nation state which is co-opted against the people of that nation state. So uh, and. Then we have to look at, at the economic groups behind them, uh, behind this action. And I can tell you from my experience that they are exactly the same groups which were involved in the numerous wars and the wake of World War II, but in fact, even World War II itself, or even going back to, uh, to uh, World War I. And it, they are the same groups which are behind the neoliberal agenda uh, which was initiated in the 1980s uh, or even both before, which consists in imposing on a piecemeal basis, on a piecemeal basis, uh, country by country, uh, very intensive um, economic 
strong economic medicine, to use the term of the IMF. Well, we have the, the so-called IMF structural adjustment program. Now, what I'm saying is that in effect, you'll find an extension of the, of the neoliberal agenda, the austerity measures imposed by governments, the, the regime changes, all this is, is part of it. But now uh, these elites have, have put together something under the disguise of the World Health Organization, which in effect is an act of economic conquest and destabilization. And we see it happening. And I think nobody in my profession, economics, political economy, or even the social scientists, political scientists, sociologists, have addressed this. What they'll say, it's the virus. The virus has caused the economic crisis. And then they will start analyzing, you know, what's happened there, blah, blah, blah. Okay? <laughs> now, I, what I'm saying is this is economic warfare, and it's an yeah. appendage of an act of warfare. Well, it's, it's also the, sa the same um, forces which are behind the war in, in, uh, in, in, um, you know, in Ukraine, but the same people, the same, the same economic interests. I don't want to personalize, but I mean, you know, uh, look at the dictatorships in, uh, in Latin America when, when we had those military coups. Well, I lived through two of them. Who came in? Who came in? Kissinger and Rockefeller, and then they had they had conversations with the with the with the dictators. Now these, well, the, let's say the, the the landscape has changed since then, but neoliberal economic measures we know what they are, and they they're piecemeal. Now in Yugoslavia, the World Bank ordered uh, put forth. Uh, a bankruptcy program, okay, which was then led to a massive uh, collapse of of the industrial system of the, the industry in Yugoslavia. Now, here you have another dimension. You don't need to go in with piecemeal. You don't need to send in the World Bank mission there. You simply do it. And but it's very important. This economic act of economic warfare and its aftermath then is sustained by the World Bank, the IMF, the regional development banks. They come to the rescue of these countries. And they said, oh, you're in a mess now. Your economy has collapsed. We're going to lend you money. And, and so that you, you, have, you have, in a sense, a, a, a global debt crisis, which is unfolding. Yeah. That, that's and, the- and Would you say- would you agree that uh, if you look at the example of Greece during the crisis, which then became first the housing crisis and the economic crisis, and then it became an EU crisis. If you look at the example of Greece, would you say that this could have been something like a trial run for what they're doing now? Well, it certainly was. It was a, but there were many trial runs from the 1980s. Yeah. IMF conditionalities were imposed on all developing countries. Then, in the early 90s, they were imposed on the, or in the late 80s, starting with you know, starting with Poland in 89, the Big Bang. Okay, Romania. Yeah. Now they then subjected these countries to strong economic medicine and uh, the 
they came up and said austerity is what you need and disengage your you know you disengage your resources uh, from the real economy and of course it's dollar denominated debt so it it, it also has to do with the, the the dominance of the dollar uh you know the dollar the federal reserve uh, calls the shots but it's of course a set of private banking institutions so those those were called we call them conditionalities imf conditionalities where they were deadly for for and and uh, as you pointed out the 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 latest stage of these um, of these um, imf reforms was was Greece and and Iceland and 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 in fact the entire European Union went in, in some form or another and and the whole objective was to dismantle the welfare state. Now, yeah, I can say that today what they've done in one fell swoop on the 11th of March was to was to dismantle the welfare state and lead to privatization. That that's the solution, and all these countries are in the stranglehold of debt. So there's not a single head of state or head of government because they it's dollar denominated debt and the European Union as well. Now the European Union may be complicit in in, in this in this agenda. We're not dealing oh, with yeah. nation states anymore. The nation state yeah. doesn't exist. But what we can see clearly, I think, is uh, through these IMF measures, the IMF is, of course, part of the club, World Economic Forum, WHO, all these global NGOs. But through these measures by the IMF, um, isn't it true that these austerity measures really drove countries into debt and therefore made them, uh, made them dependent on IMF money on those people, on those private people who are controlling these NGOs, just like they're controlling the global corporations, or is that an oversimplification? No, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. But the the thing is that the IMF is is theoretically an intergovernmental organization linked to the UN, but it's controlled by Wall Street. Okay, we we uh, the even the yeah. we know that even the appointments. Of course, we had the various scandals attached. I won't go into that, but I mean, the IMF and the World Bank are intergovernmental organizations. They have a link to the US Treasury. They, they are US constructs, but they're controlled by, the, by Wall Street and they, and, they, and they establish a consensus. Now, what, what, is, what boggles the mind is that immediately in the wake of the, of the lockdown, uh, and the the collapse of of financial markets though those collapse of financial markets were engineered okay they were engineered and then it led to enrichment uh and uh the imf came to the rescue the world bank came to the rescue uh private creditors came to the rescue now that means that they now have a stranglehold on every single country on the planet every single country on the planet has is under the stranglehold of debt uh, by different creditors, but ultimately, the, you know, if you look at the power structures, it's uh, let's say it, it, it's BlackRock, uh, the, the investment portfolios, BlackRock, uh, State Street, uh, uh, Vanguard, etc. And those, of course, they they're in the shadows. They don't reveal their identity, but in effect, the Rothschild family and the Rockefellers uh, control part of it with with a whole series of partners 
and uh, and now what is co very convenient for the for these uh, financial interests is that they 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 they're invisible you know they, they can they can take over countries and they also taking over countries like cuba and venezuela okay which are supposed to be on the you know they're on the blacklist of the united states and 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 they're they're the object of sanctions and so on and they also have an inroad into the into Russia because Russia adopted this this uh, consensus. Now that so I'm I mean, I I have I'm in contact with many people on the so-called left progressives, and I'm on their blacklist because they they I I mean uh, they uh, I'm I was I'm a professor at the at the university at the National University of Nicaragua in fact, uh, and uh, and. Uh, my colleagues simply don't agree with me at all, and they don't want to even enter into debate. They don't know that, that Daniel Ortega, for instance, the progressive leader of the Sandinista movement, they accept the Pfizer, uh, the Pfizer uh, vaccine uh, without any kind of, of review, even the, the kinds of review that we're familiar with, you know, the, looking at the confidential documents and the data and so on. So they, that, that so I, I think, well, to get back to the to the the timeline of this crisis, and and I I I sp I've spent two years on more than two years on this. Okay, now it's clear that this was prepared well in advance. Okay, well in advance, uh, several years in advance, and the vaccine. It's very clear. Even we have documents that it was already in the pipeline in early 2019. And we have also uh, evidence that uh, the, the the PCR test was already chosen to be the you know the the way to identify the pandemic. But what I think is very important uh, is that one, assuming that the PCR test gives viable results. They didn't have those viable results when they when they declared the emergency. On the 30th of January, there were 83 cases out of China, and that's that is uh, PCR positive. Okay, 83 cases out of 6.4 billion people. Now, anybody who has a little bit of understanding of first of of high school statistics will say, "Oh no, there's something wrong there. You got 83 cases." Now, when we get to February, Tedros makes the announcement, 1,078 cases, and he says, oh, it's getting really dangerous. And then on the, on the day of March 11, there were 44,279 cases. In the meantime, they started to speed up the testing. Now, yes. uh, and incidentally, today, the, the, the cumulative confirmed cases are more than 10,000 times what they were on March 11, 2020, okay? And in the last six, seven months, they have doubled. And, and now we are told that the, the, the pandemic is over. We've never had more cases. Uh, I mean, I'm not, these are not real cases, they're fake cases, because they've introduced, well, I, I think that I mentioned that the last time we, we spoke, that both in the United States and Canada and, and many other countries, well, no, around the world, they're introducing the, the antigen and home tests. And in, in Canada, it's 290 million home tests 
for a population of 38.5 million people. It's one in seven home tests for every single set, every single person in Canada, which means inevitably the, the you know the figures are going to go fly high. And then they started inventing this whole thing with uh, with uh, you know with the uh, with the variants. Now we we know that this 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 is nonsense. But even the doctors pick it up. How can there be a variant when the terms of reference of the PCR test is a is a is a, a virus of two thousand and three two thousand two two thousand three Okay. If we look at well, we we've we've read the Drossman report and so on and so forth, and we know that that the virus has never been identified, and we know that they took that two two thousand three uh, uh, virus as a terms of reference, and I I have a hunch that this was for intellectual property rights. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, David Martin has looked into that aspect, but uh, I, th I think that's something we should look into. But clearly, they took the PCR test because it's a convenient test. It can be applied anywhere in the airports, et cetera, et cetera. And then they use, the, they use these statistics, which are absolutely meaningless, particularly in view of the fact that both the WHO and the CDC have repealed them officially. Well, not of CDC officially and WHO with innuendos. But there we are. We've got that preparatory stage, which may go back several years. I, I recall now uh, the, the statement that Bill Gates made about uh, a pandemic, the well, we the pandemic of the uh, of the of a monkeypox pandemic. He made that statement in 2017. Okay. At the at the Munich uh, Security Conference, and then he made it again uh, last November. But the thing is that here we are; we have ample evidence that this is a fraud. But we have to look at the fact that this is an act of war, which is also integrated into the broader military agenda. I I, I can't come to any conclusion other conclusion it's one procedure which has never been applied in in world history of paralyzing the economy of every single um country on planet and uh, and directing again against uh 7.9 billion people now what i should say is that if we if we want to periodize we have a preparatory planning period complex then we have uh, then we have the 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 transition leading up to the lockdown in march on march 11 uh, 2020 uh etc and then we have a, a a whole set of of economic crises which are very very serious which are a means of enrichment of this milliardaire class and and then the second phase takes us to the vaccine now the vaccine is is biological warfare. We we have, I think we have enough data, and it's no use. It's biological warfare. It's crimes against humanity, as you brought it out. It's also the criminalization of justice, uh, and it is consistent with the lockdown. 
the lockdown is also a, a way of killing people. And I, I'm of course. Yeah. And, and I mean, the doctors don't see that mortality, morbidity emerges when people are, are, are impoverished, when they don't, uh, when they are, they don't have access to health, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So the lockdown is perhaps even more di Well, at the time, the lockdown was more diabolical. But when we we look at the two things together, the vaccine and the lockdown are the the two pillars for the impoverishment of people worldwide. And also, you know, it is a depopulation agenda. Okay, it is de facto. We, I don't want to enter into the into into the debate on that. But when I, I mean, my experience as an economist is if you apply these austerity measures uh in 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 individual countries you impoverish people so it's global poverty now then we have then we have all this nonsense about uh sustainable development uh 2030 the rio uh you know 1992 agreement blah 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 environment co2 and all of this is funded by the foundation Soros, Rockefeller et al. And the UN is, of course, complicit. And it really is to provide a sort of neoliberalism with a human face. And they, they say we're against poverty. We're, we're going to, by the year 2030, we're going to reach all these objectives. They're not. They're doing exactly the opposite. And they're that standing is everything on its head. head. They're standing everything on its head and using nice sounding words for what is really going to be a totalitarian regime. Well, absolutely. The, the, the thing is that, that all these people, so-called leftists, are uh, either they're totally misled, but they are they are they have this sort of humanitarian discourse, Black Lives Matters, the environment, yeah. but they don't look at who is financing them. You know, I I mean yeah. I I uh, I've had this kind of confrontation with many friends uh, when I saw that, uh, you know, the world, the world social forum, okay, the world social forum, which was really the, they, they was presenting this as a, as an alternative to the world economic forum or as a parallel venue. And it was taking place at the same time of the year in, in you know, in, in mid to late January. And I, I mean, I, I made the, I said to my colleagues, how can you confront uh, the Rockefellers when the Rockefellers are paying your travel expenses? Okay, all these foundations, all the, the world, the, the, the World Social Forum was funded, was initially funded by the Ford Foundation. Now, and then all the other all the other things where they they the extinction rebellion the the black lives matters all this every single uh, uh, organized uh, process of resistance against uh, you know against a totalitarian regime have been co-opted and the, and the trade yeah. unions as well the trade unions as well they go to davos every year now yeah you know what the other day the other day we spoke about how this is all eugenics driven and we spoke about the fact that the first person to represent unesco was julian huxley and in 1946 right after world war ii shortly before they started the nuremberg trials he said 
something to the effect of um, because he was also the president of the British Eugenics Society. So he said something to the effect of, oh, Hitler gave eugenics a bad name, but pretty soon we're going to be able to talk about it openly again. And in that context, I realized that they had really co-opted everything that we as normal people find that it makes sense. For example, he was one of the co-founders of the World Wildlife Fund. So they have infiltrated everything. That's why I keep saying disconnect from all of this, set up our own system, self-sufficient, totally, totally uh, independent from these organizations. Well, absolutely. I, I mean, we can't even rely on the UN anymore, okay? Oh, no I mean, way. Uh, the, the World Health Organization was funded by was funded from the outset by the Rockefellers. And, and uh, yeah. people don't know that, that it had already a label. And uh, and the other entities of the UN and now the complete UN. I, I come from a, U, a United Nations family. Uh, so and, and, and I, I know the intricacies of what was happening. But uh, there was a period where there was some hope, particularly, you know, in the countries would get together, but all that was also staged. Uh, United Nations uh, traded, uh, Conference for Trade and Development, uh, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, the big, the it was the WTO in 1995, which was illegally imposed because then it controls intellectual property rights worldwide. Now, but uh, I, I, I don't see, so I, I think that what, what is very important is that people who are anti-war have to be also integrated into, the, into uh, an understanding of this uh, COVID narrative, uh, because we're not going to go anywhere if, if the resistance are, are divided. We, we have to, I don't, I don't think we should confront them in an aggressive way, you know, you're, you, you know, I think we have to enter into dialogue, even with people who are funded by the Rockefellers, sometimes they don't even realize it. And, and the people funded by Soros, I, 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 I think we, but then we have to understand what kind of resistance we have to put forth. And, and it, it's also another aspect that this is a conflict of capitalism versus against capitalism. Okay. It's it, we yep. we can't simply say well this is a class conflict uh, you know we have to look at the fact that airlines are bankrupt uh, the small and medium sized enterprises are literally bankrupt already but it's going far beyond that so that in in effect we we have to act in a way which brings all sect all sectors of society together the chambers of commerce and industry and indeed the the military and the politicians and so on it, it's it's it it's to break this consensus and the way i mean the way to, to break the consensus what you have you have uh, initiated is is to is is to reveal the falsehoods yeah, now i, I mean uh, when when somebody says to me when, when i say there is no pandemic they say oh you must be crazy no no i i, I guess i am crazy but the thing is if i tell them that it's 83 cases on, on the 30th of January, and then the following day, Trump closed down, initiates the closure of air travel, okay? And then it's a thousand cases in, in, in February. Oh no, yes, very, very dangerous, blah, blah, blah. But 
that and then people we have all the data on the vaccine we know all the impacts we've documented that and it's all corroborated and it's and it's corroborated uh, we discussed that last time because now we have a report by Pfizer which was which has been made available to the public through freedom of information and we have mm -hmm. all the data and we can say very clearly that if on the 28th of February 2021 when they when they reviewed their report the first thing would have been to say we can't implement this vaccine because there are too many there are deaths there's mortality and morbidity based on our own data okay and that, i i think what i i said that that's the transition from from uh, manslaughter into genocide in effect yeah uh and because it's not just pfizer it's not just pfizer because what pfizer knew the, the fda knew as well of course, the, the FDA had all the information and the governments had all the information, most probably, and the, the EU government had the information because that yes. was part of their negotiation for, for liability and so on. But now, I, I mean, when I see that Pfizer was already had a, has, has a criminal record, it's the only company in the US which has a criminal record uh, with the Department of Justice, at least based mm -hmm. on their statement for fraudulent mm -hmm. marketing what where this is not fraudulent marketing this is going far beyond this is genocide and uh, mm -hmm. and uh and it is coupled with the the economic genocide underlying the lockdowns okay the lockdowns are devastating because they disorganize a whole country okay and, and in some cases it's it, it, well we take the case of india where people who are who are homeless, which is a large sector of the urban population because they're seasonal workers, they come in, they, they were precipitated into starvation. Uh, we know that. Yes. They're, they're, they're extensive crimes against humanity. And, uh, and, and I mean, it's true that the, that the PCR test ultimately is some kind of smoking gun. I was very much attacked when I, right at the beginning when I started talking about the PCR test, not in medical terms, but more in, 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 uh, so, in the justification of social measures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And people say, no, you're absolutely crazy. Even people in the independent media, they said, no, you're crazy. So well, no, I guess we're all truth. <laughs> I, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Of course, the PCR test is the smoking gun. And if you look at how they used or rather misused the PCR test intentionally, that's how you can prove intent malicious infliction of harm. Um, and that's what we're going to do. But uh, in the meantime, I find it okay. And I find it very helpful that if in those jurisdictions where the uh, um, where the uh, justices are not willing to look into the uh, scientific evidence, you just go other routes, just like what Bobby Ann described. You just attack uh, the authority of the of the uh, administrative state to issue such regulations, which they then call laws or which they think are laws. Um, but the PCR test is at the core of this. It is the foundation. It is the cornerstone. If you kick that out from under them, you kick the legs out from under them. Sooner or later, we're going to do that.
Well, certainly. Um, the you know the the other aspect. Um, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, You're saying that the military is involved in this. It's very obvious from Johns Hopkins Health Security. It's very obvious that the 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 uh, hot war with rockets and hand grenades and uh, uh, fighter planes, etc. Uh, has given way to a much smoother silent war, but it's just as deadly, probably even deadlier. It's the pandemic now. No, precisely. And I think that these the the wars and as well as the sanctions, as well as the regime changes are all integrated. It's one agenda uh, which is serving the same the same group. So it's the extensive military industrial complex which with a trillion dollar nuclear weapons program 1.3 trillion right now going up uh, by the year to 2030 they say it's going to be even more i think it goes up to 2 trillion but the thing is that we're uh, we're at a very dangerous crossroads because the sophistication of war making is is there and it and and this uh, this COVID nineteen agenda, coupled, let's say, with what now what they're now preparing is, is that the pandemic treaty, where they where they've already announced, they said, well, we'll have at least ten pandemics from now until twenty thirty. Okay, now how do they know? <laughs> how does Bill Gates know how many pandemics they're going to? And then he said he he comes up in a statement in the, on the on the monkeypox thing. And he said, oh, uh, 10 airports, 10 airports with about 100 cases or whatever. And it's uh, and it's a oh, yes, and it's a terrorist attack between two countries. OK, uh, and, and then there's a simulation of that. But how on earth does he know coincidence after coincidence, conspiracy theories that on the on the 12th of March, uh, I'm sorry, on the 12th of May, the World Health Organization announces uh, 10 countries, uh, implying 10 airports possibly, and about the same number as what was in the simulation. And then the simulation, which was actually, uh, I, I've looked at that simulation, but it's not strictly a big pharma simulation. It is the it's a national security agenda because they went through very they went through two stages but essentially they they had their specialists in biotechnology by and biological weapons and then they had they also had big pharma and this that and other and they come up with very similar then they said oh the pandemics has has started the monkeypox pandemic has started on the on what on the 15th of may 2022 okay now that's what happened in real life i don't think that this is necessarily uh, going to emerge as the same in the same way as covid but it is there to as a propaganda mechanism to justify the signing of the pandemic treaty which in in essence involves the creation of a uh, a, a giant data bank of 7.9 billion people worldwide with their personal details, their banking details, uh, their, you know, uh, whatever, their education. I think that they have in each of these 
data files, they can put several thousand concepts. And so it, it becomes an instrument of, of uh, global governance. And, uh, and, and, and that, of course, is the end game. It's, it's, it's global governance, uh, which, um, which Rockefeller, the late David Rockefeller, defined as the alliance between bankers and intellectuals. Obviously, we're not part of those intellectuals, but certainly people like Ferguson, all the corruption at the level of these so-called scientists, uh, yeah. like Ferguson or, uh, or Drosten and et al., they're all paid by Gates. Yeah. Uh, Ferguson is paid by Gates, Drosten paid, paid by Gates. Of course, Tedros receives millions from Gates, but we don't have necessarily the paper trail of that. But uh, there we are. Uh, we, we are in a situation of, 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 of corruption at the, at the planetary level. And, and as you said, the, the eugenics is there. Whether we, whether we name it as eugenics, uh, we're, seeing the, we're seeing the impact of the vaccine worldwide. Um, well, the sooner we the sooner we stop mincing words and playing uh, uh, playing their game, um, the sooner we call a spade a spade. I think the quicker people will understand what's really going on. Uh, when you're saying this is economic warfare, it obviously is. Uh, the first such exercise, I don't know if you remember this, uh, but that was um, Operation Dark Winter. Uh, that was conducted in military style. One of the people who participated is James Bush, and he testified uh, on our model grand jury proceeding. But afterwards, they tried to uh, hide the military in the background. However, you can still see that it's there um, through uh, Johns Hopkins Health Security and through the fact that the German uh, uh, Ministry of Health is really being run by, by a uh, general. So it's all there. It's all there. It's in your face. What they're doing is, uh, after you explained it again, what they're doing is they're telling us, you stupid imbeciles, if we tell you to jump off the bridge because there's a pandemic, you're going to do it. That's what they're doing. Precisely. And, and I mean, what is very dangerous there is that they have at their disposal a whole set of, of weapon systems, and the Russians do as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Nuclear. I, I've spent a good part of my, of the last few years, um, investigating nuclear weapons and, and also simulations of nuclear war. They have there tons of them. So only a few have been have been made public, uh, and and the Rand Corporation has made uh, the simulation, and they say that we can win the the, the nuclear war. Well, that, they're absolutely wrong there, and uh, but politicians like. That you know, they could run for an election, which will never take place. Yeah. They were, we, we're, we're we're going to win the nuclear war, and next, yeah. <laughs> so, but I I mean, uh, right now, well, I'm I'm at the same time I'm following what's happening in Ukraine, and I can say that there is no avenue uh, other than uh, and a peaceful a peace the the peace initiative which was already initiated in Istanbul um, under the auspices of, of uh, the Turkish government of Erdogan, which is not particularly a pacifist, but the thing is uh, the 
the Ukrainians, irrespective of all the money that that's coming in, they do not, they do not have, uh, they, they don't have access. They don't have access to the Sea of Azov. Okay, the Ukrainians don't have access to the Sea of Azov uh, because the Russians control the the Kirk uh, uh, Strait. Which is uh, which is right at the extremity of, of of Crimea, and if they don't have access to the Sea of Azov and they don't have a navy and then and the air force has been destroyed right from the beginning, they the only avenue for them is to is to negotiate a peace treaty. Uh, but I think they're being pushed into uh, yeah. into a possible, uh, you know. The possibility of a nuclear war is there. It's there because um, that may be part of a decision-making process, and particularly now when they have categorized nuclear weapons as harmless to civilians, uh, we're, we're in a very, very dangerous situation. But I think what we have to do at this stage is to bring it to to extend the anti-war movement and the anti-COVID narrative movement, we have to mesh them together because we're dealing with the same process, very, very sophisticated acts of warfare, climatic warfare, nuclear warfare, biological warfare, propaganda, um, you know, all the gamut of, of regime change, corruption, uh, digital, of course, the, the, the digital dimension of against humanity of transforming people into transhumans all of that is linked together uh and yeah. and i think we have to we have to take a, a stance and and also the the thing is not to fragment i i notice that people on people on the left are fragmented okay well the left and the right should join together we're not talking about party politics here we're talking about humanity and, and, and in other words, uh, you know, we're not talking strictly about racism or whatever. It's it's a much more extensive battle that we have to wage. And we we must, given the the the, the nature of decision making and the, and the power behind it, we have to enter the ranks of the military, of the of the public sector, of the business uh, corporations, because there's a grassroots there. People in the military has, have to be part of this movement. People in, in, uh, in the public sector must be part of this movement. And of course, the, the, the problems that you're way, uh, facing with, uh, with, uh, with the judicial, okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we don't, we, we don't have many progressive judges uh, running around anymore, you know? The, at least I, I, I'm trying to, 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 to uh, initiate some action here and I can't get a lawyer to go after the, the Trudeau government um, uh, in relation to the vaccine, for instance. Can't do it. How do you, uh, how do you uh, see, I think I've asked you this before, uh, but how do you see, uh, what role is Russia or Putin playing in this? And on the other hand, what's going on, there's another BRIC country, what's going on in Brazil? It seems I spoke to someone who knows the situation in Brazil pretty well. He says, um, well, it looks as though the WEF, the Bilderbergers, 
Um, they're now going into hiding. They're doing everything behind closed doors, WHO as well. Um, but it looks as though they have already, um, for them, it's a foregone conclusion that Bolsonaro is going to lose the elections. Uh, instead, uh, uh, Lula is going to be, be reinstated by them, running on one promise. And the guy who told me this is, wasn't joking. He said, running on one promise, which is, if you elect me, I'm not going to steal everything from you again. <laughs> Listen, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I know Lula. I met, I met him before he, he, he was, uh, he was in, in the, he was in opposition at the time. But I, I can tell you, uh, and I, I, I've been blacklisted in Brazil for that because I said that Lula was neoliberalism with a human face. He was co-opted right from the beginning of his, uh, as his, his pre presidency. And uh, he, uh, he the, the central bank of Brazil was um, handed over to Wall Street uh, Mereles, who was actually the president of the, well, he was with some very powerful um, banking interests, et cetera. The whole, it was a neoliberal agenda and, and throughout his, his career. And then he sent troops to Haiti. He was friends with George W. Bush he has he's the ideal leader for them and the people on the left are supporting him everybody's supporting him now bolsonaro i'm not a fan of bolsonaro but i but i uh, but the thing is that we don't have a pro uh, there's no progressive alternative in in brazil and what the what these elites what they like is that they can have they can have a proxy which has a human face and which you know is a former trade union leader and so on and who doesn't necessarily understand issues of debt uh, lula doesn't understand what the debt is all about and uh, uh, and he obeys orders he obeys orders so he's the ideal candidate but that is the mo model in many other countries okay yeah as as long as the as uh, these leftists are part of the alliance uh, unfortunately, and I, I'm not talking about the grassroots, but the, the, the leftist leaders are co-opted. And I, well, all of I, them, all of them seem to be products of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders Program. So there you have it. Of course, they follow orders. If you take a closer look, they don't have any biography or if they do, it's fake, complete fake. Some of them have some rhetorical skills, but that's about it. What about yeah. Putin, though? That's a really interesting figure in this chess game. Well, you're right. It's 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 very mysterious. I, I think that Putin is very. Uh, he's extremely. He has he's an has an ability as a former intelligence agent. He was with the KGB. He he strategizes his relations, and he builds diplomatic alliances uh of a cross-cutting nature so he's allied with turkeys and and then he will try also to have inroads into uh, to maintain good relations with with the european union uh but uh why is it that russia adopted the covid narrative uh i i suspect that there are interests among the 
Uh, it's a capitalist country and, and it has oligarchs. We, well, we only call oligarchs when it's Russia or China, but they have their business interests there in the pharmaceutical industry. I know that they had a, an alliance with AstraZeneca. Definitely that they have that alliance the, the, uh, uh, between two pharmaceutical in companies. Now you could say, why did Cuba accept it? Cuba uh, was in despair. The only real component of its economy was the pharmaceutical industry, uh, which was launched. Uh, it was launched in the 90s. Uh, and it was there really as uh, it, well. It was, it was a, it was a response to the, to the end of the Cold War and the relations that they had with the, with the Soviet bloc. But I know, uh, and I, I, I know that the Cuban pharmaceutical industry has links to GlaxoSmithKline, and that's long-standing. And. Uh, and the leadership is, I would say the leadership, the post-Castro leadership is co-opted. Uh, I've been to Cuba, I'm, I'm not, they don't invite me anymore, but uh, I, I, had, I had a personal relationship with Fidel Castro, um, who uh, invited me to his home for a period of four days, and, and we discussed it. We were mainly discussing nuclear, the nuclear issue. And his voice was very important. He has with, he had withdrawn from politics when I that was in 2010. But uh, mm -hmm. the post Castro leadership, they made some very stupid mistakes. But they uh, they uh, they were in the you know they were caught into to the threat of of these sanctions which go back to the to the late 50s um, and. Uh, but again, also Venezuela. Why would Venezuela accept this and go along with it? They, well, they must have been. They must have had pressures from the United States to do it. Uh, and without understanding that the World Health Organization was controlled by the by Wall Street. So, uh, but that that's the kind of thing we have to address. Um, because we are, we we don't really have progressive countries anymore. What happened to the welfare state in the European Union, uh, Yugoslavia? You know, I mean, community of nations, and we certainly don't have democracy in in the People's Republic of China. Uh, that's another dimension, uh, and uh, they're caught into this. This uh, they're caught into the narrative. And they are complicit in the narrative. Uh, yeah, it seems like I've that country is a totally lost cause, right? Pardon? I, it, I get the impression that China is a totally lost cause. Well, you know, China, uh, China, uh, initiate, China's part of the consensus because they're the the the. The chief executive of China CDC, which is, which is the comparable to the U.S. CDC, uh, Chinese uh, Center for Disease Control and Prevention, is is uh, Dr. George Gao Fu, and Gao Fu mm -hmm. actually uh, was involved in the the 2001 exercise, and he was also involved in the in the the monkeypox 
um, simulation. So he is very much linked up to the, uh, you know, he's, he's linked up to, uh, uh, to well, he's, he's a graduate of Oxford, he's linked up to the Harvard group, the John Hopkins, uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a fellow, he was a fellow of the Wellcome Foundation, they are, he responds to their interests and not necessarily to those of the Chinese government. But that Chinese government is also divided as some very powerful and, and wealthy multi-billionaires, uh, which are there. And, uh, and also now, uh, well, I've been following rather indirectly the, the, the Shanghai crisis, uh, how they managed to, that, that I mean, that the closure of Shanghai uh, starting in March, and it's still ongoing, but it, it, it that was totally, it was based again on PCR tests, fake data, um, and it was based on directives which came from the upper spheres of the health establishment, including Gaofu. Gaofu is a friend of, of, of Fauci. He doesn't deny it. He calls him my longtime friend, Fauci Gaofu. Okay, they know each other. Um, yeah. And um, there we are. Um, the situation in Ch China during the pandemic, and I've been in contact with people, is far more devastating than what we have experienced because they're using the QR code to regulate people's movements. So they say you have to take a, a PCR test every 48 hours. Those in, in in Shanghai and several other large urban areas, you have to take a QR test. Uh, you I'm sorry, you have to take a, um, a COVID PCR test every 48 hours. And when the time elapses, your QR code on your cell phone goes from, uh, from green to orange, okay? It's, it goes from green to yellow, okay? And then they say, it says, if you, you, you're not allowed to walk in the, you're not allowed to go anywhere. So the person who, who, who doesn't do it every 48 hours, then is confined. Uh, and and it's, it's regulated through the cell phone. And people who don't have cell phones, they, they, are, they are totally marginalized. And th that's including people, uh, you know, older people who are, who, who are living in a different uh, era, you know, they, they, they simply say, these people are simply marginalized totally. They don't have access to health, they don't have access to food, they don't have access to restaurants and so on. So that they regulate, the, they've been regulating their population with this QR code on the cell phone. And it, it, is, um, it is modeled, it's, it's not the Chinese, leadership which has uh, has uh, imposed this it is uh, the complicity of chinese officials and scientists which are linked up to to the fauci gates gang and ted ross yeah and 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 yeah. uh, gaofu is everywhere i mean he's invited to all these venues um we we got has, a closer look we, we got a closer look of how these this gang, uh, which is using uh, WHO as a kind of uh, crowbar, 
um, how this gang infiltrated and tried to take away the sovereignty from a very small country by the name of Vanuatu. Uh, two politicians, active politicians, told us how they, uh, how they, the WHO sent two people who the Vanuatu government thought were advisors because they didn't even have any cases there, advisors in these uh, difficult times, uh, a doctor from uh, Korea and a woman doctor from France, who all of a sudden decided to give the government orders. So that's a direct invasion of that country's uh, sovereignty. So what's the upshot of all this? Um, we shouldn't, that's what you're saying. You're, you're saying we shouldn't, uh, we, we must not allow the resistance to be fragmented because that's what they're trying to do, divide and conquer. At the same time, we should see that the other side is fragmented. There, uh, there are infi there's infighting going on. So if we reach those pockets of resistance that exists on the other side, in the military, in the airline industry, for example, yeah. um, I think that is probably going to be important. That's why, why we should keep talking even to these people, not just to our own echo chamber. No, absolutely. I mean, you have to, this is something which is affecting everybody, particularly yeah. in view of the fact that the vaccine has been extended to a large share of the world population. And, uh, and particularly in view of the fact that we have mil you know, millions of, of families who have lost their assets, uh, farmers who, are, who have been driven into poverty and so on, we have to be consistent in solidarity with all sectors of society, okay? In other words, that, that includes local capitalists as well. I mean, I, at this stage in our history, we have to restore the real economy and we have to ensure that the real economy is not simply taken over by Bill Gates or et al., okay? But because that's really what is at stake. And that is, that's what was at stake in all these IMF reforms. You privatize, okay? Uh, you can't pay your debt? Okay, you have to privatize. Privatize your cities. We'll, we'll sell them on the free market. That, that, is what, that is what the creditors are going to... We haven't reached that point yet. We have, uh, we have the most serious debt crisis in world history. I can say that. I don't have the figures on that because they don't reveal the, 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 the figures. But I can, I, I, I can see it the way they spend their money. Now, if they spend the, the, Canadian, uh, the Canadian government has spent two point, two, more than $2 billion to purchase the antigen and home tests. Okay? Out of the budget out of taxpayers revenues okay and in the meantime health is collapsing education is collapsing etc etc then they're sending billions of dollars to ukraine uh the the whole fabric uh is sustained by global debt and the, and those creditors will come in and say well listen you owe us money and if you don't repay well we're going to make sure that you go uh, now, I, I think we have to question the legitimacy of that debt, of those debts. Exactly. The debts exactly. Created, these are odious debts. How about, well, because I think that is the point. The, you said we have to restore the real economy. That's what it's all about. 
in order to restore the real economy, we have to get out of the stranglehold of these basically private, uh, well, private uh, I, uh, criminals. Uh, I include the WMF, I, I include the World Bank, just disconnect from them. Tell them to go to hell, collect their money amongst themselves. And then all of a sudden, the, the stranglehold will be gone. It's just us, the people, each of us individually, that has to realize that we have our own sovereignty. Who cares? We're not going to pay back the debt, which is only in existence because they drove us there by taking our assets and our money away from us. Well, I, I mean, to do that, we have to start to reveal how those uh, financial interests actually enrich themselves. Okay. Now, I, I, we have data on that. Irony is the economists have, uh, well, the, it's the Policy Institute in Washington. They've come out with a, the, how it's focusing on the billionaires, but it, of course, it's much broader than that. But they have literally more than doubled their wealth in the course of these two years. I, I don't have the, I've had the figures for the first year, but uh, what I'm saying is that we can, we can say that they are fraudulent. Okay, and that they have accumulated wealth in a fraudulent way. Uh, but then we have to go also go, I think really the, the it's not the smoking gun, but uh, because it's, it is a gun, it's, it's the whole issue of propaganda. We have to disable the propaganda apparatus yeah. because yeah. what the media is saying are, are the lies. They're not, even, they're, they're not even reflecting on official data. The, we know we base ourselves on official data as far as the vaccine is concerned, mortality, morbidity, the 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 Pfizer report. That, that there's nothing in the mainstream media on that, and so that that and and that has to be done. Also, I think at, at it has to be done at the grassroots. We're not these are powerful conglomerates, uh, Reuters et al. But we we uh, we we still. We're not going against grassroots journalists, some of which are, are, are protesting to that, but, but some of them which are already have been groomed. But we have to sustain, we have to sustain the independent media and now we're, we're being closed down. Uh, uh, we, global research, uh, we've been, this is more than 20 years that we started up. And, uh, and now, uh, we um, in the month of in the month of May we were subjected to uh, to uh, a cyber attack. Uh, can you imagine? Over one one week, seventy billion, seventy million, not billion, seventy million, uh, what they call malicious requests. Okay, it's there to destabilize your website. And then on top of that, you have censorship, you have smears, and so on and so forth. Um, and um, and I, I even have very great difficulty getting the Canadian media. Um, and so it, it, it's, I, I think there's a lot, the, 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 I think the key to, to the, the, this resistance movement is, if, is solidarity uh universally not and not not limited to one country okay not limited to one yeah. country it it has to we have to 
join hands around the world uh, with uh, you know uh, people who are suffering in different parts of the of the planet and 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 of course revealing the the lies is is the key but uh, but those that process of revealing the lies is being hampered in 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 various ways and people are threatened now you, you mentioned the case of vanuatu um, that operation has probably taken place in every single country on the planet in and in some cases in a in a more in, in a more um, aggressive way than what 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 vanuatu experienced because it's a small island country <laughs> but mind you it, it this they need they need a universal acceptance now that was probably planned way ahead way ahead of of um, of the lockdown they had it all they had their people and they use they use uh, private uh, they use private consulting firms like McKenzie, who goes in and and then says well we could support your your election campaign just tell us where we we have to send the money now yeah. i i noticed uh, william engdahl has brought out a very interesting article on that regarding the election process in the us so mm -hmm. there we are um well i i think yes let's join hands and uh and uh, hope that we can uh, and integrate the anti-war the and the and um and also the whole issue of neoliberalism has to be addressed uh in one when you said one single movement you, you you're saying it's grassroots yes i agree it's grassroots uh what we uh what we have to do is in order to uh as you phrased it restore the real economy we have to do it in our regions and then connect with each other but first we have to do it in our regions you know someone just told me mexico is totally ungovernable i find that um i find that a positive thing because it turns out that in mexico many of the regions are totally independent they don't care what the government tells them they're doing what they feel is right and that's what democracy is all about so those regions that have already disconnected from these global corporations and global NGOs, they should then connect with each other, exchange the best ideas. And that's how you get global or universal uh, solidarity, as you put it. Well, I, I think you're, uh, you're absolutely uh, right. We have to have grassroots endeavors, but we also have to have mechanisms of, of uh, coordinating and we have to inform our fellow citizens that this is not simply a local crisis because most people don't and i'm it's not a critique but most people don't understand that this is happening in the entire planet and uh, yeah. and then uh, but then we have to have mechanisms of of, of confronting but it essentially well to, to put it to make a historical comparison this is an inquisitorial environment, okay? Now, the, yeah. the, the Spanish Inquisition, the French Inquisition was even worse. The Spanish Inquisition lasted 300 years, but essentially it's the imposition of an inquisitorial doctrine. Uh, and it, it, it then enforces itself by, by obedience and submission. We have to break that. 
and and it's yeah. that consensus is very fragile right now and uh and i think they're also of course there's sort of in between rhetorics would say well where you know uh well they made a mistake now they're, they're coming out with oh uh neil ferguson made a mistake he didn't make a mistake he was paid with his math i yes. i've all my life i've dealt with mathematical models i know what they do but he put in his he, he put gates told him what to put in the, the model and he comes out i've estimated scientific imperial college of london now though yeah. but but we still we now have people who are coming forth and saying well there were mistakes made we must evaluate that and so on that is nonsense and that simply yeah, is going to say, well, yes, they made a mistake. They didn't make a mistake. They falsified the data, and yeah. and, uh, and so on. And, and we and should I, what we I, should do. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say what we should do is we should have you on um, um, another time uh, because one of the key points of getting out the truth is to, as you said it, show how they enrich themselves that's going to make people really angry that's going to make them think twice about who these guys who are giving who are giving us orders who they really are well i i have two chapters on that in my ebook uh i don't have a, an english language publisher as yet but it, it came out in japan uh, a month ago mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it's it looks like it's doing well but but i've got all the data on how they enrich themselves and and let's the, talk about that next time yeah i i mean you know the, the thing is also michael hudson has come up with a, a he's an economist come up with a very interesting book on on uh, mm. on some of the issues we've discussed about the economy but he hasn't addressed the uh, the covid crisis whatsoever mm -hmm. it's as if the covid crisis uh, the virus is responsible for for the crash of the financial markets yeah. And, and that that is the consensus they say oh the virus uh, triggered collapse and and then eventually they got <laughs> china to pay to pay uh, you know give us some refunds you know for all the damage that you've done but we also have to confront uh, i think the the doctors are doing fabulous work but they they're still confined in their understanding mm -hmm. uh, and that's not a critique but that we have dialogue with medical doctors and scientists we have no dialogue with with uh well we should have dialogue with people at the grassroots trade union leaders we should have dialogue with sociologists political scientists i mean the geopolitics of this crisis are are there okay and and uh, and how is it at the universities it's a total completely censored you you can't discuss this uh particularly mm -hmm. among so-called progressive uh, progressive groups so that's why well, you uh, know yeah you know i think i think so long as people start from the assumption that the virus is causing everything they're definitely barking up the wrong tree and they're not going to make the right choices well absolutely i mean we i think we can prove it prove <laughs> quite categorically that the virus is not the cause of of this of this crisis because just looking at the numbers irrespective of the pcr the, the numbers are so ridiculously low when they when they uh, announced the the pandemic on march 11 2020 
44,000 cases worldwide out of China, yes. positive cases. But uh, again, yeah. uh, and then then even if we take the definitions of the WHO on, on COVID-19, where they des they describe it, they say, oh yes, the 5% could be very serious, but they give a definition whether whether this is true or not, but that's their definition, okay? Now that definition was never revealed in the in the mainstream media. They said it's similar to seasonal influenza, blah blah blah, uh, and you recover within ten days. They say it black on white, and then not a word in the mainstream media. So that's where confrontation. I mean, if the mainstream media, if we had control of the media, the mainstream media for forty-eight hours. Public opinion worldwide would 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 uh, would shift uh, inevitably. Exactly. exactly. Well, we do have something at the end of our uh, session today. Uh, there is a uh, video clip. I think it's about thirteen minutes or so. I think you'll find it extremely funny. There's an American comedian by the name of J J P Sears who explains everything you're saying, but in an, in an extremely funny way. Um, so I want to thank you very, very much for taking the time. And if you have a little bit longer, you should watch that clip because it's extremely funny. Right, I will definitely watch it. And I, I also, another thing we would like uh, to feature your programs on a regular basis on global research, uh, we uh, on a daily basis uh, uh, will will make ensure that th that there's a space for that. Uh, but I have to receive the them in in. Uh, um, well, it's all, it, it's it comes out in in uh, in video. So great. Uh, we have featured some of some of uh, we've well we featured your writings and we've featured several of the videos. But I think we should be doing it on a on a on a on a regular basis um and we do, we real do honor. have a very extensive readership um excellent despite censorship so alles gut und beste danke vielen dank vielen dank vielen dank das war aus ausgezeichnet mein deutsches mein deutsches habe ich keine gelegenheit deutsch zu sprechen so das ist perfekt okay bye for now okay bis später ja tschüss ja vivian tja da sind wir wieder am ende der sitzung angekommen was well, so we're at the end of the session again you've announced uh, what's coming still and i think it's the only clip we have for tonight We'll do the others next time. This one is important <clears throat> because uh, it, it segues what Michael Surakshofti just told us. As is, it's just a very funny version of what we've just heard. It's a perfect square. Great. So, um, curious to see. <clears throat> okay, uh, we're at the end of the show now, and I would like to uh, appeal to you to support, uh, keep supporting our work. We have a new account, so if you've made a standing order uh, or if you're thinking of supporting our work for the first time, then uh, we can only uh, finance this work uh, through uh, the um, uh, donations that we collect. We don't get any of it, but the people who support us, the staff, they can't do it for free. 
So thank you very much uh, for all those who have supported us so far. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been possible for us to make all this progress. Otherwise, all I can say is that I wish you a nice uh, Friday evening and a good weekend and see you soon next week. Industrial revolution is that it doesn't change what we are doing, but it changes us. The difference of this first uh, industrial revolution is it doesn't change what you are doing. It changes you if you take a genetic editing. Yeah. And of yeah. course, this has a big impact on your identity. Yeah. Editing your genes? Cool. I'll explain that later. But first, why do so many people consider this guy, Klaus Schwab, to be the most dangerous man in the world? Well, there's some reasons. A lot of them. You might remember Klaus Schwab as the puddle of liquefied feces who said, by 2030, you'll own nothing and be happy about it. Translated, that probably means by 2030, he'll own everything and he'll be happy about it. But how does he expect you to own nothing and be happy about it? Oh, he's got a plan. Now I'll tell you about it in a minute. But before I do, a little bit about Klaus Schwab. He's the author of COVID-19, The Great Reset. What a grand opportunity indeed. Oh, and his book was published on July 9th, 2020. <laughs> Wonder how he got it written and published that fast. It's almost like maybe he pre-wrote it before he started the pandemic. I mean, before the pandemic started. Old Klaus is also the founder and chairman of the World Economic Forum, an organization that faces the public with very noble sounding goals of creating a better world. Fear-mongering about climate change and disease are big goals of theirs. Welcome to Davos. Just park your private jet over there and then go inside and pretend to be concerned about climate change. Klaus and the World Economic Forum want a worldwide digital ID system that determines your access to goods and services. It would monitor your online behavior, purchases, and biometrics. It kind of seems like he just wants to do away with the whole democratic process and give all the power to the state and whoever runs the state, the deep state. But that's based on both his words and actions, so it's probably an inaccurate observation. Was Dr. Evil's character based on this reptile? Mr. Schwab writes the following. One of the greatest lessons of the past five centuries in Europe and America is this. Acute crisis contribute to boosting the power of the state. It's always been the case, and there is no reason why it should be different with a pandemic. Nobody ever elected Klaus Schwab to anything. This all just sounds like conspiracy, doesn't it? The World Economic Forum are good guys. Haven't you seen the headlines they pay for? Go green, right? Right? That's probably right. They truly are good guys. Accordingly, you'll be excited to hear that the lineup of World Economic Forum speakers at their annual gathering of elites in Davos included such benevolent humanitarians like Xi Jinping, the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, who's currently committing genocide, Anthony Fauci, who's arguably currently involved in crimes against humanity, and Bill Gates, who's arguably currently involved in crimes against humanity, and Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who's arguably currently involved in crimes against humanity. What a great lineup. But my favorite economic forum speaker of all time is this reptile, Klaus Schwab's top advisor, Dr. Yuval Noah Harari. Let's see what he has to say. Data 
might enable human elites to do something even more radical than just build digital dictatorships. By hacking organisms, elites may gain the power to re-engineer the future of life itself. Because once you can hack something, you can usually also engineer it. Elites hacking organisms and re-engineering life itself? Well, he's not talking about doing that to people, is he? Now, in the past, many tyrants and governments wanted to do it, but nobody understood biology well enough, and nobody had enough computing power and data to hack millions of people. Neither the Gestapo nor the KGB could do it. But soon, at least some corporations and governments will be able to systematically hack all the people. Well, I guess he was talking about doing that to people, all people to be specific. And if indeed we succeed in hacking and engineering life, this will be not just the greatest revolution in the history of humanity. This will be the greatest revolution in biology since the very beginning of life four billion years ago. For four billion years, nothing fundamental changed. Not playing God, are you? Because that usually works out super well. Science is replacing evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. Not the intelligent design of some God above the clouds. Oh, you are playing God. Say more. Evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. Not the intelligent design of some god above the clouds. But our intelligent design and the intelligent design of our clouds, the IBM cloud, the Microsoft cloud, these are the new driving forces of evolution. Gosh, you wouldn't by chance have a plan in place on how to control people with your cloud technology, would you? And that plan isn't by chance already being implemented, is it? Today, we have the technology to hack human beings on a massive scale. Oh, so you could implement it. In this time of crisis, you have to follow science. It's often said that you should never allow a good crisis to go to waste. Sounds familiar. And I guess you are implementing it already. Didn't anyone bother telling this guy not to say any of this out loud on camera? It's, it's just, it's a lot of evidence. Surveillance, people could look back in a hundred years and identify the coronavirus epidemic as the moment when a new regime of surveillance took over, especially surveillance under the skin. My brain, my body, my life, does it belong to me or to some corporation or to the government or perhaps to the human collective? This guy's revealing the whole plan. He's going to ruin it. The World Economic Forum, out for the good of humanity. You'll own nothing, not even your own DNA we have our way. Now for some additional fun facts about Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. They've got a Young Leaders Program, which is a five-year indoctrination program into their principles. The goal of the program is to create world leaders who don't answer to their people because they don't care about them. They answer to their bosses at the World Economic Forum. Graduates of the program include admirable world leaders that are suspicious Preciously in lockstep with a great reset, such as Justin Trudeau, Francis Macron, and Mark Zuckerberg. Sponsoring partners of the World Economic Forum's Young Global Leaders Program have been the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Google. I wonder why Google censors and shapes information to be in exact support of the World Economic Forum's narrative. 
Hmm. Oh, another fun fact. The World Economic Forum is predicting a worldwide cyber attack. I'm pretty much a wizard at predicting the things I'm going to do, too. The very concerned Schwab believes the cyber attack could bring a complete halt to our power grid, transportation, hospital services, and to our society as a whole. The World Economic Forum then simulated the cyber attack. Simulated or planned? I'm not sure, but they said it was a simulation, so it's probably best to just believe them. Oh, also the World Economic Forum, along with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, hosted Event 201, which oddly enough played out exactly as they planned, or simulated, or whatever. Let's move on. And here's a picture of Klaus Schwab sitting in front of his statue of Vladimir Lenin. I wonder why he's got a statue of one of the most murderous world leaders in history. Lenin killed an estimated 5 million people. And finally, remember Schwab's whole thing about you'll own nothing and be happy about it? What's the World Economic Forum's plan to make that happen? Well, it's probably nothing, but consider this. BlackRock is an investment firm with $9 trillion under management, which is a higher GDP than every country on Earth, aside from the US and China. Therefore, it turns out BlackRock has more political and financial influence than the Federal Reserve and most governments. Sounds cool, but what's the connection with a World Economic Forum? <laughs> well, again, and it's probably nothing, but BlackRock CEO Larry Fink is also just a board member of the World Economic Forum. Well, that's super convenient and probably just a coincidence. Is the World Economic Forum and BlackRock colluding in corporatism where an unelected corporate elite dictates top down to the population? Well, they couldn't be doing that because they'd have to infiltrate the government, which they haven't done. Except for, in one of Joe Biden's first appointees once he took office, he named Brian Deese to be the director of National Economic Council. Brian Deese came from BlackRock, where he was a global head of sustainable investing, and now he's Biden's main advisor for economic policy. But Biden's making the policy decisions, not the unelected corporate elites at BlackRock and the World Economic Forum. Of course Biden's making all the decisions. Let's not be silly. Oh look, there's a picture of Biden in the audience at the World Economic Forum. Oh, and also Kamala Harris's chief economic advisor is Michael Pyle. He came from BlackRock, where he was a global chief economic strategist, overseeing the strategy for investing $9 trillion. Well, it looks like corporatism, but it's probably not. But if it was, it would actually be a viable strategy for BlackRock and the World Economic Forum to own everything and for you to own nothing. Oh, fun fact, BlackRock is buying up single family homes at an alarming rate, oftentimes paying 20 to 50% above asking price. So normal people like you and I can't own the homes. Now, there is an interesting pattern to all this. You know how you hear about ancient tyrannical rulers who would rule over their dumb people by saying things like, yeah, if you don't do all of this slave labor and let me sleep with your wives, then God's gonna make you all perish in a deadly storm. Well, God told me, and because I'm elite, I have access to this knowledge and you don't. So you better do as I say, or you're gonna die. Well, us peasants can't perceive what the king can, so we better do as he says. Go ahead and bang my wife. And thank you for doing it for my protection, King. Good old fear-mongering. A predictable pattern as old as time itself. But with Klaus in the World Economic Forum, it's climate change is gonna kill you, disease is gonna kill you, and a cyber attack's gonna get ya. So you better do as we say, or you're gonna die. I don't know, the weather looks pretty good to me. 
Why don't you ever smile, Klaus? You look like a sociopath. No, you don't understand. We elites have access to knowledge that you don't. So you better listen to us or you're going to die. Same old fun pattern of fear-mongering. They know of the scary problems and only they have the solutions. So listen up or you're going to die. <laughs> gotcha, Klaus. Nothing new here. We see you. In conclusion to the question, is Klaus Schwab the most dangerous man in the world? Here's his top guy again. Humans are now hackable animals. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. Free will, that's over. It will indeed be over. If you outsource your thinking to outside influences and take the easy way out by choosing obedience over bravery, doing so makes you very susceptible to being manipulated by fear. And if this happens, you will fail at remaining a free sovereign individual. But here's how Schwab and his friends who sociopathically never smile, fail at their great reset and you succeed at remaining a free sovereign individual. Be guided by your own critical thinking and what your heart and soul knows is right and choose bravery over obedience. Obedience or bravery? Outsource your perspectives or do your own critical thinking? We are in the process of either the Great Reset or the Great Awakening, and the choice isn't Klaus Schwab's. The choice is yours. What's up, my friend? If you would enjoy the feeling of spreading the message of freedom wherever you go, check out my full line of freedom merch at awakenwithjp.com. Hey, I want to thank the sponsor of today's video, Primal Life Organics and their LED light teeth whitening system. If you don't have teeth, then this ad is not for you. Sorry to be uninclusive. But if you have teeth, then you'll like what I'm about to say because Primal Life Organics, in my opinion, has the world's number one natural teeth whitening system. I'm in love. The latest science says you are more attractive and you will like yourself more if you have white teeth. And the science also says if you don't have white teeth, you'll like yourself less, and, and other people will like you less. They'll pretend like they don't. Here's why Primal Life Organics is the only teeth whitening system I use. Number one, it's free of harmful chemicals and harmful peroxides that damage and denature your teeth that other teeth whitening products contain. Number two, it's very effective at whitening your teeth. Just 16 minutes a day, three days a week, and